0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, that's got to be the most bullish episode on Ether
1: we've ever had, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> that is saying a lot. Ultrasound Money with Justin Drake. Justin Drake is a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. He also was the guy that led the charge behind one of our previous most beloved episodes ever, which is Moon Math, the bull case for cryptography, where in that episode, Justin Drake took us through the innovations behind cryptography and made the claim that the current state of crypto economic systems design, basically Bitcoin and Ethereum, are just in the very primitive ages of the deployment of cryptography. This is a very similar episode, but instead of talking about cryptography, we're talking about economics, specifically crypto economics. And Justin, again, makes the claim that we are just in the very beginnings of economic innovation when it comes to crypto economics. And he takes us through his vision of the future, his vision for the future of Ethereum and the future of Ether, the asset. And what can it really do when we apply all of the research and development that we've done ever since 2009 when Bitcoin got started?
0: You know, I think historically David there's been a little bit of a taboo in Ethereum culture to talk about price. So we use terms like economic security. And to be clear, we're not we weren't talking about the price of Ether on a given day in this episode, but the monetary premium of the asset Ether as a store of value in the asset's relationship to the economic security of Ethereum. I've actually never heard An Ethereum researcher or someone very plugged into the protocol design talk about it in this way. So, for me, honestly, David, this is kind of like a a dream episode. It's one thing for listeners to hear Ethereum bulls like you and I talk about this, Uh, it's another to hear from somebody who's actually designing the engine and designing that engine with the intent to produce what? To produce a sound money? To produce an ultrasound money? this to me was like really a a fantastic episode, like a dream episode. Honestly, I've been waiting for an engineer, a developer, somebody who's working on the engine of Ethereum to come out and say this. And you know, the takeaway here is, uh, hold your hat, folks, like Ethereum is coming, Ether, the asset is coming for a store of value position in this ecosystem. It's like we've been saying from
1: day one on Bankless, David, Ether is money. Justin Drake, to me, is a true cypherpunk. He is really leading the charge of what the legacy of the cypherpunks have left behind. Where they maximized innovation in cryptography, it exploded onto the scene. Cryptography exploded on the scene with the emergence of Bitcoin and crypto economics. Justin is a cypherpunk 2.0 because it's now not just cryptography, it's crypto economics. And to me, he is the absolute expert on crypto economics and what crypto economics can do there were so many takeaways in this episode and there's just too many to list here. But I think the one takeaway that I do want to mention is that There has already been this sound money culture in Ethereum. It's just been hidden under behind the scenes. And with the emergence of things like EIP-1559 and the reduction of Ether issuance in proof of stake, we actually get to talk about how that creates a sound money in Ethereum and the beneficial tailwinds that that creates for Ethereum and also for the world. If the world can have the hardest, most sound money possible, it deserves that. And Ether, according to Justin Drake is ultra sound money.
0: I would make the statement, guys, that you don't know Ethereum, and you certainly don't know ETH the asset until you've listened to this episode, because ETH the asset is going to be defined, and Ethereum the network is going to be defined by the next engine upgrade it's receiving. And it's receiving that economic engine upgrade. Now, with Proof of Stake, this has just been live for a few months, uh, EIP-1559, and the eventual merge and ending of Proof of Work. So if you want to understand the future of Ethereum, if you want to understand ETH, the asset, you have to listen to this episode, it is well worth your time. The other thing I would say is, you might not understand Bitcoin, the asset, or Bitcoin, the network, until you listen to this episode. And that's the hidden spicy take. David, should we get right into the episode? First, we want to tell you about our sponsors that made this
1: episode possible. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction. So you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com guys
0: we've entered a bull market now is the time to start building your crypto empire and you should do it on gemini you already know gemini is the world's most trusted crypto exchange but now you can do even more than trade you can earn you can take one of your crypto assets and park it in an interest-earning Gemini account where you can get up to 7.4% annualized. There's nothing more satisfying than earning passive income on an asset that you're already bullish on. This is a crypto-native superpower. You know what's coming soon, too? A Gemini crypto credit card. Yep, that's a credit card, not a debit card. It gives you rewards and hard-money crypto assets, not something inflationary like airline miles or hotel points gives you up to 3% cash back in crypto. The card is coming in Q2, but you should get on the waiting list right now and we'll include a link. See what I mean? This is more than just trading. Gemini is your bridge to crypto for the bull market. Open a free account in less than three minutes at Gemini.com slash go bankless. Get $15 in Bitcoin after you trade your first $100. That's Gemini.com slash go bankless. All right, Bankless Nation, we are super excited to once again host Justin Drake, who is a brilliant mind and researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. We just had Justin on for one of our most popular episodes, one of my favorite episodes. I think David would agree, too. My favorite as well. Moon Math and the Bull Case for Cryptography. The last episode really focused on cryptography. We touched the economics, but we didn't get into it in detail. I think in this episode, we are about to. So think of this as the sister episode to the Moon Math Bullcase for Cryptography episode. Justin, Drake, it is fantastic to have you. How are you doing today, sir?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again.
0: This being sort of the, the sequel, the sister episode, I felt like the theme from the previous episode was cryptography is really in the stone age and we have so much further to take it. And there are all of these cryptographic innovations that are coming down the pike that, that we are going to incorporate in crypto, going to incorporate uh, in Ethereum. But we didn't talk as much about economics. Is there more to talk about on the economic side here?
2: Right. I mean, that, that's a legit, legitimate question to ask. You know, we have, you know, these huge improvements in cryptography. Do we also have huge improvements in uh, economics? And I'd argue that um, we're still also in the Stone Age when it comes to economics. And in a way, I mean that literally, right? Because we're in, still in the age of gold-driven economics. So, uh, and gold, you can think of it as a, as a stone, as a shiny rock. Um, so Bitcoin has taken the the approach to mimic gold and the economics of gold as much as possible. Um, so you can think of it as skeuomorphic economic design. It tries to copy the real world. is this is very similar to what happened in um, in the early days of the internet when people were designing websites, um, they had these, um, these buttons which look like actual press buttons. but when you take a, a clean slate approach um, you you have new possibilities and when you really embrace the, the digital aspect um, of, of trustless sound money actually you can really transcend t- to a large extent um, this this stone age uh, economics um, and you know when when preparing this pos- this, this podcast I actually realized that, the, the gap between the economics of, of Bitcoin, which is kind of Stone Age economics, and kind of the, the, f- the future of Ethereum, which you can think of as, as sci-fi economics, is, is enormous. Um, it's 10, 100x, 1,000x um, you know, better. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm excited to, to dig into concretely what are the improvements of the economic system as a whole. We have various uh, components that are individually improved. So, for example, we have an improved consensus engine where we go from proof of work to proof of stake. You know, we have an improved uh, fee mechanism where we um, go from this first auction mechanism to this, um, you know, e- EIP one five five nine mechanism. Um, and you know, we also have various other economic innovations um, such as the, the the issuance policy and all these things together in this latest design really come together really, really nicely. Um, And so in the same way that um, Bitcoin is engineered money and it's engineered to be as close as possible to to gold, we can ask ourselves, what if we push forward this uh, this economic engineering as far as we can? And we have 12 years of, of, I guess, innovation that, that that are compounding. Um, And when you compare uh, what we have to what we will have, um, the the gap is is enormous.
1: So, Justin, our last episode with you was all about the bull case for cryptography. And the claim was that cryptographic hashes and signatures were really just like the stone and the fire when it comes to cryptography. And there's so much more left to tap into, so much more potential to tap into. And I I think we're about to do this again with economics, where you're, you're claiming that with economics, the uh, the progress of humanity and innovation behind cryptonomics is just at the very beginning. Yet, I want to I want to plant an idea, an image in uh, the listeners' heads, where. While innovation in economics can progress, economics as a discipline still follows the same patterns, and this is the patterns that humans have come to, to understand. There, in with every economic system, there is an economic engine. The uh, the engine of an economy is a metaphor that we hear out, both inside and outside of crypto, and. What I think we're, you're going to lead us through is a metaphor that we're going to keep on returning to, is how economies are engines, and the design of said engine impacts the economy, and also the fuel that we put into this engine impacts the economy. And so as a frame of reference, uh, you're going to take us through all of these different ways and this comparison makes sense. So to kick this off, I want to uh, throw the ball back into your court. Maybe you can elaborate on that metaphor. How is an economy like an engine, and where does this conversation start when it gets turned to Ethereum and cryptography and crypto economics.
2: Yeah, so I actually stole an idea from uh, Michael Saylor. So Michael Saylor loves to say that Bitcoin is this um, economic battery um, that can be uh, charged with kind of monetary premium. And I I kind of agree, you know, with, with, with this metaphor. And I was thinking to myself, okay, what if we extend this energy metaphor to the other pieces of blockchain, not just um, the battery. So I guess we have, you know, monetary energy, which you can think of as kind of electric energy. And this monetary energy is stored in battery cells, right? So you can think of one token, for example, one Bitcoin or one Ether as being um, a battery cell that can store this this energy. And I guess um, if you Look at the, the the battery. There's kind of two separate ways to to charge and discharge the indiv- individual um, energy uh, battery cells. So the, the the first one is kind of a exogenous process. So you have the market with supply and demand that will pump in energy into the battery, and the battery will 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 store this energy into the battery cells. And the reverse can happen. You know, you can sell um, and and remove. Um, energy from, from, from the battery. Um, so so guess- buying,
1: the, buying the token is charging the, the token. Selling the token yes. is discharging the token, right? Exactly. And so if I can pay you to do push-ups, right? I'll pay you like one Ether to do 100 push-ups. And I can pay you to do that labor. I can pay you to do that work. And that is how the, the stored energy in an asset, in gold, Bitcoin, Ether, can turn into real labor, real work in the real world.
2: Exactly, yes. And like one of the things that we're trying to design for is the concept of soundness. So what does soundness mean? It means that the energy storage holds over time, right? So in 10 years time, I still want the energy to be stored in those battery cells. I don't want that basically the battery cells to to leak. And so that's that's. One way um, the where you can charge and discharge the, the battery is just by buying and selling the um, dema- supply and demand. And by the way, when
0: we're talking about energy here, Justin, right, the, the metaphor that Michael Saylor used is the same metaphor that you're using. Energy here is value. Yes. Specifically, it's, it's monetary value. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about like proof of work energy or anything like that. We're actually talking about value being the monetary engine of these cri- crypto economic systems, correct?
2: Yeah, that is correct. I mean, you, there's there's various analogies that are rooted in engineering when we talk about money and value. You know, you can think of it in terms of fluid mechanics, fluid dynamics. Sorry, where you have fluids. You know, we all, we talk about liquidity, right, and and liquidity pools and things like that. Um, and you can also use heat, kind of as a as you know, like heat travels from one place to another. Um, but yeah, I guess. For today's podcast, we can use energy as the metaphor for monetary value, as you say exactly.
0: Got the energy. We've got the battery cells. Uh, Take us further into this metaphor.
2: Right. So there's another mechanism which is basically um, issuance and burn. So here, um, what you're what you're doing is that you you're creating new tokens, so new battery cells, or you're removing battery cells, and here you're not really charging or discharging the battery as a whole. Like the amount of energy stays the same, but you're redistributing things. So when you add, for example, battery cells, you create new tokens. Um, the kind of these these battery cells have the property where they all want to have the same value, right? Because they're fungible. So you you print new containers, these battery cells, and then. Kind of, you have this flow of, of monetary energy from the, from the existing battery cells into the new ones until they all have the same um, uh, value. And it's the exact same mechanism when you're burning. And uh, from the point of view of, of a Bitcoiner, you know, issuance is the root of all evil uh, in the sense that when you create these, uh, these new tokens, well, it's kind of leaking um, from the existing tokens um, and so as a, as, a, as a Bitcoin holder, you don't like that because you're being diluted.
1: Your energy is getting stolen from you, right? Because, because big new Bitcoins or new dollars or new Ether are completely fungible with old Bitcoins, old Ether. The issuance is just stealing that energy. It's not creating new energy. It's just tapping into the energy that already exists in these other monetary assets. Exactly right.
2: Yep. Now, th- that is one... Component, which is the battery, and then there's kind of a, another extremely important component in the world of blockchains. And to continue this energy metaphor, think of an electric engine, the engine. So specifically, um, the the engine is going to be a metaphor for our consensus engine. The consensus engine takes in economic fuel, right, and that could be in the form of issuance, right, which is a way. Um, to basically discharge individual cells and, 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 and take energy and, and give it to the engine, or you could feed this engine with another type of fuel, which is the transaction fees. And then the whole point of this economic engine is that as an output, is going to give you economic security. And this economic security, which is output, is meant to secure the, the, the whole system. Um, and so... Uh, when, when you look at the, at the engine, you know, you, you can look at various things, like how powerful is my engine? Like how much economic security is it giving me? Or you could look at um, how fuel efficient is it? Like how much um, power do I get per unit of fuel? Um, or you could ask yourself, okay, what is the f- best type of fuel to feed into my engine? Is there like one f- type of fuel which is better than the other? Or you could look at um, what is the ratio of the, the load that under which the, the, the engine is and the, the power that it has, right? So if you have a, an economic engine of, of, of power, let's say $10 billion, it takes 10, you have $10 billion of economic security, meaning that it costs $10 billion to attack the system. But your, your load is going to be the economy living on top of that. So if we look at Bitcoin, for example, it's a $1 trillion um, you know, system. It has $5 billion of economic security. So the, the load to power ratio is going to be 200, 1 trillion divided by 5 billion. And then you can, do, you can look at all sorts of metrics like that uh, about your engine and try and understand: okay, what are the properties of my engine? And it turns out that if you take your engine, which is proof of work, and you replace it with proof of stake, pretty much on every single metric, you get an improvement. And it's not just like a a tiny improvement, like 10% or 20% or 50%. It's 10x better, 100x better, or in some cases, 1000 times better and more.
0: So we're gonna dig into all of these components in, in more depth, but just to kind of establish these components in as part of the, the intro. So the engine, as you said, is the consensus mechanism. Yes. And so Bitcoin, of course, uses proof of work. Ethereum in the future will use proof of stake. We're gonna get into that. And you also mentioned the fuel is basically, it's economic fuel, yes. right? This is not gasoline or petrol. This is a fuel that comes from two sources, generally in a crypto economic system, issuance is the first source of economic power, economic energy, and transaction fees are, are the second source. But let me ask a question about the the engine. So uh, an electric car engine produces something, right? That is motion. It, it, right. it enables the, the car to go from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, what does a crypto engine for a layer one like Bitcoin or Ethereum produce? Is this consensus is this or more abstractly does it produce trust
1: right what is the output of the engine
2: right okay so the output is what i call economic security in the context of consensus so the way that i kind of think of it um kind of graphically is that imagine you have like some sort of star wars or star trek kind of shield around your spaceship and you know it's providing security it's like your economic shield um and just to be very concrete in Bitcoin, it's it's hash rate, right? So basically, what is the dollar um, equivalent to your hash rate? So in Bitcoin, the hash rate is 150 million terahashes per second, okay? And each terahash, if you were to go buy, you know, uh, mining uh, hardware, each terahash will cost you about 30 bucks. So you have roughly $4.5 billion dollars of economic security. So, if you want to overthrow the Bitcoin system, if you want to perform a 51% attack, you're going to have to buy 4.5 billion dollars of, um, you know, mining hardware in order to, to get that hash rate. Um, and so, you can denominate economic security in dollar terms. Like it's basically your 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 moat, uh, your defense moat. Um, and for for Ethereum proof of stake. Um, your security, economic security is also denominated in dollars. And the way you, you, you get the number is basically by, by looking at the total amount of ETH staked. So right now we have um, 3.5 million ETH. Um, at current prices, this is over $6 billion. So um, you know, even today, you know, this very nascent uh, proof of stake system in Ethereum has more economic security um, than, than Bitcoin.
1: Justin, there's an interaction here between the energy and the engine, right? And this is the difference that that we often talk about on the Bankless podcast is there's Bitcoin, BTC, the asset, and then there's Bitcoin, the network, right? There's Ether, the money, and then there's Ethereum, the economy. And then there's the Ethereum consensus mechanism, which is proof of stake. And all of these things interact. They're all a part of a composed system. And... Uh, the the viability, what we're going to get to is the viability of the engine and the efficiency of the engine ultimately impacts the moneyness that goes into the engine, right? Because one the strength of one impacts the strengths of other, others. And I, I, before we get into the differences between like how crypto economics is different than gold economics, because there are important differences there, I want to ask you about like, well, when all of these things get integrated when all of these composed systems and we, we maximize the benefits and and efficiencies of all of these systems to generate this maximally efficient engine. That is what gets, gives monetary premium. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so one of the, um, the things you mentioned is that all of this is a system, right? Um, and it's important to consider them in, in, in combination. So, um, for, it, for, for gold, kind of, uh, one of the very nice things is that the, the engine you get for free, right? The engine is, is mother nature, is the laws of physics. The laws of physics kind of give us for free censorship resistance. It gives us for free no double spend. And it gives us for free no, you know, no forgeability and things like that. Uh, unfortunately, in the world of, of blockchains, um, your consensus engine, you just have to keep feeding it. You don't get it for free, you have to pay for it. Um, now, if you look at the um, economic design of, of Bitcoin, especially in the long term, when there's, there's no more issuance, basically, um, w- what it's done is that it's, it's, it's kind of made a, a mistake, right? And the mistake is that it's, it tried to mimic gold a little bit too much. And so what it's done is that it's it's basically isolated, segregated the, the battery and um, and the engine. So today the 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 battery the, the engine is is connected to 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 the battery. And so that's that's providing this constant source of fuel that will give you economic security. But in the long term, you know, this link is severed. So there's there's, there's two s- separate systems: there's the battery and then the engine. And then the risk is that you have this amazing battery which is the the BTC asset with like 21 million bitcoin guaranteed uh, but you know it's it's the the, the real liability is, is the is the engine here now going back to to your your question around um, I think it's a question around rec- re- reflexivity, which is basically what is going to be used as a store of value and it's kind of It really, it it kind of starts, in my opinion, at the the technology level, right? Because once you have the best candidates for something that could be a good store of value, it could have very nice properties, it could be digital, it could be programmable, it could be scarce, it could be secure, all of these things. Then kind of people start using it as a store of value. And then, you know, you have this reflexivity going on. Um, And so, you know, in the same way that we've seen, um, you know, the, the... stores of value radically change over time. You know, we've had, you know, seashells and, you know, salt and, you know, yapstones and, and gold and, and Bitcoin. I, I think we're at the cusp of something new here, where technologically speaking, we have something which is radically better than what we have before. And then that is kind of this uh, w- weird ref- reflexive loop that kind of discharges the previous um, store value and then and then charges the, the the other store value, the successor.
0: Let's talk about that for, for a minute because that is' a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a property, and I'm going to use the term magical because it's almost a magical property that some assets, some scarce assets get to have, which is this magical meme power of monetary premium. It's the thing that bunch of humans have collectively decided, should be valuable and that they should store their wealth in. And it's reflexive, as you say, is because the best store of value is um, the store of value that community, the entire world, comes to consensus on effectively. So when you're betting on a future store of values, you're, you're kind of betting that um, society and, and culture and communities around the world will choose to, to store their wealth into one thing. So not everything can have this. Right, you you mentioned like this this history of money, uh, where gold had that throughout throughout the centuries, throughout the ages. There were times where silver had it, but assets like copper never had strong monetary premium, or it was like you smashed by some of these harder, more sound assets. And you also mentioned, Justin, that um, the interesting thing about gold is it's imbued with this economic security um, due to physics. Right, the birth of a The explosion of a star, a supernova has created gold on the periodic table of elements. And that is its security budget for its lifetime. It doesn't have to keep repaying it, whereas Bitcoin does. Bitcoin has to keep repaying its economic security, keep feeding the engine as it will, or else it will no longer work. So we're drawing these kind of comparisons, I think. But can you talk a little bit more about this mystical property, this magic meme mm. energy behind a monetary premium? So, where does it come from? People still don't really understand that, Justin. Like, it it we know that it's in gold, but we've grown up with gold being a store of values. Before our lifetime, we see it maybe emerging in Bitcoin. We see elements of it emerging in ETH. What is this monetary premium thing? Where's the magic
2: here? Right. So, if you were to use kind of economic terms, I'd say that um, you know it's all about the shelling point. As you said, there's co- coordination involved. You have various candidates for stores of values um, and you want to look at their merits and you want to have some sort of mechanism for society to agree on one of them, to co- coordinate on one of them. Basically, you want to you have the winner, you know, the, the, the natural processes for the winner to stand out in, in some way and the fact that it stands out Means that it becomes the shelling point, and then that becomes the the place where everyone you know congregates. You know, there's there's various ways to achieve a, a shelling point, right? One could be like simplicity, security. One could be like the Lindy effect, like how long has this thing existed? You know, one could be you know how useful how useful is it? This is, is where commodity monies came from, right? Like the shelling point was that the the money is useful already. So, you know, it's a natural place for everyone to coordinate because they already had value. And, you know, you, you can think of, of gold as being, you know, um, commodity mon- money to, to an extent, right? Because, you know, gold has been used, you know, for jewelry, but also for, you know, industrial u- use cases. Um, and I think once we in the, the digital world, um, you know, you know there's, there's many properties that are very important to have. If you want to be that that shelling point where everyone congregates and where the narrative kind of um, does its does its magic, as you say, um, and like I think one of the big ones um, is is programma- programmability, and this is one of the the things that uh, is is a distinguisher between um, you know Bitcoin and Ethereum. But you know beyond that, if you look purely at um, you know e- economic considerations, I think there's there's two of them. The first one is economic security, right? So Bitcoiners care very, very deeply about security and for very, very good reason. You know, they're paranoid. You know, it's part of the, the, the culture. And one of the amazing things is that from an economic security standpoint, um, Ethereum is miles ahead than Bitcoin. Um, so that's kind of one check uh, in the checklist uh, that we have. I guess uh, another aspect for being a shelling point is, for being an economic shelling point is, um, economic efficiency right so how efficient is your system um you know going going back to the security like how fuel efficient it is um and this is going to have real impact you know um on on security on on issuance and things like that um, and it turns out again that um if ethereum is orders of magnitude 10 to 100 times uh, more fuel efficient Uh, than than, than Bitcoin. And then when you combine these two things together, economic security uh, and economic um, efficiency, then out pops kind of something amazing, which is um, economic scarcity, Um, but not just the standard vanilla kind of cap supply economic scarcity, but a new paradigm, which I guess you could call ultrasound money, right? So if Bitcoin is sound money because it has this cap supply. Then, um, thanks to all sorts of innovations, you know that go really, really deep. Um, at the very surface layer, um, you have you know ultrasound uh, money, and the idea here is that the the total supply is actually decreasing over time. And this is actually somewhat similar to Bitcoin in the long term. So, you know, it's a a natural process for people to lose their keys. For example, as they die, you know, if they haven't set up. Uh, you know, a proper inheritance mechanism and whatnot, um, then these coins could go, could go missing. So, you know, if you estimate that, let's say, um, one in a thousand coins goes missing every year, um, then in roughly 30 years, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, is going to become ultrasound in the sense that the, the, the amount of money, Bitcoin that is lost uh, through natural mechanisms will outpace the inflation. This, the issuance. Sorry. Um, um, I guess Ethereum will be ultrasound kind of 30 years earlier um, than Bitcoin, and it will be ultrasound by not just you know point 0.1%, but potentially much, much more uh, than that.
1: So I want to recap where we've gotten to uh, so far, and then we're going to get into the details about uh, how this, this comparison works out. Monetary energy, which is the monetary asset, the units, Bitcoin, gold, Ether, Uh, that's the battery. That's the fuel going into the system. And gold has this privilege because it was birthed in supernovas, right? And there's no such thing as a supernova money printer. That doesn't exist. That's nonsensical. Yet when we talk about this realm of crypto economics, what you're saying is that just focusing on the battery side, the energy side, the value side of things is only half of the equation. And if we really want to maximize what is the potential here, we need to both have the best fuel possible, the best energy possible, the best value possible, but we also need the best economic engine. Because if we have a good fuel, but a poor engine... Our aggregate output is less. And just focusing on one of these two things is missing the whole picture. And so this is where I think, Justin, you are particularly optimistic about Researching both how to make the best value possible, with also making the producing the best engine possible, and it's really the aggregate of all of these systems that is what we are calling a new paradigm. Rather than a skeuomorphic backwards design of replicating what we already know, we are actually using innovation, research, and development to actually progress forward. So I think at this point in the conversation, I want to turn to the engine design. So not talking about the, the value or the fuel, but instead talking about the system, the engine that consumes that fuel and, t- and comparing and contrasting the efficiency of proof of work and proof of stake. Uh, could you lead us into, into that conversation?
2: I guess just before we do that, I, I just want to add one more essential component. It's actually a three components in the system. We have the battery, we have the engine, and then the third one is the solar panel. Okay, so what does the solar panel do? It's a way to convert one form of energy into another form of energy, right? So solar panels will convert solar energy into electricity. And the metaphor here is the fee market, right? So you have this transactional utility, right? People have a desire to um, to transact and that um, translates into transaction fees. And this... this uh, output of the solar panel, um, it, you know, can be fed into the into the engine, and this is how um, this is how it it is right now with um, with both Bitcoin uh, and, and Ethereum proof of work. Um, the the solar panel is connected to the the engine directly. Um, and the solar panel
1: but, captures the energy of the economy, right? There's a GDP yes. behind Bitcoin. There's a GDP behind Ethereum. There's a GDP behind the United States. The IRS taxes that GDP, you know, gas fees on Ethereum taxes that GDP. Bitcoin fees tax that GDP and injects it back into the system.
2: Right, exactly. Um, so it's important to take into account this the, the solar panel. And I guess one of the, the key innovations Um, that we have in Ethereum is uh, EIP-1559, and you can think of EIP-1559 as finding a way to basically use the output of that solar panel and connect it to the battery so that you're charging the battery. So instead of connecting the output to the engine directly, you're connecting it to to the battery. and and you know this this has very significant you know consequences in terms of security and I'll, I I I guess we can we can talk about that. So I guess you know you're asking, you know what are these characteristics of the engine? Can we go through them one by one and, and try and compare and contrast uh, proof of work and and and, and proof of work, uh, proof of stake. You know I already mentioned you know just in terms of, of, of raw power. What is the the, 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 the power of the engine? Right. Bitcoin has 150 million terahashes per second, $30 per terahash, that's 4.5 billion. Ethereum has um, about 6.5 um, billion of economic security with the, the ETH at stake. Um, in the beacon chain. In the beacon chain, exactly, right.
0: Um, so I, I just want to camp on that for one second, mm-hmm. Justin, because I'm not sure like everyone understands that. So what you just did was you multiplied the value of all of the hash rate, and you came up with a number. Because hash rate is essentially, it's capital. It can be converted into units of value. It can be converted into dollars. Right. And, and you compared that, and you said, what, that's 4.5 billion or so, or 5 billion? 4.5, yeah, let's say 5 billion. 4.5 billion, okay. And then what you did was, and that that, that uh, is essentially the economic security of bitcoin. So if somebody wanted to attack bitcoin, they would have to have what? 51% of that
2: 4.5 billion? Is that correct? Well, let's assume that the 5 billion is honest. They don't want to attack. So you as an external attacker, if you want to have 50%, you need to match what's already there. So you kind of need to double okay. the hash rate and then
0: so I need to double the hash rate. So I need to have like, you know, 5 billion or so yes. of equivalent hash rate, okay? And and let's let's remind. Bitcoin just like Ethereum gives two security guarantees no double spends and no censorship, right? So that's why security is so important. That's why we're talking about it. Now, with Ethereum, you just use the number uh, that is based on the amount of ETH staked right now in what we call ETH 2.0, right? In the beacon chain, essentially. And the value of that is what, 6 billion at this point in time?
2: Right. Let's say 6 billion.
0: So it's 6 billion. So what you're saying is already, um, you know, post-merge, whatever that happens in ethereum ethereum as a economic network is already provides more economic security than bitcoin this is what i this is what you said and this is what i just wanted to emphasize because i'm not sure people have fully wrapped their heads around that and understand that the ethereum network is potentially already more secure economically than the bitcoin network at least post-merge, once proof-of-stake is fully activated. That's what you're saying, right? Yes, that's correct.
2: I mean, someone might ask a very natural question, which is, what about, in addition to the, you know, $5 billion of mining hardware that you need to buy, what about the electricity that you need to, you know, expend to to perform the Exactly. Aspects? It turns out correct. that the electricity per day, you know, is, is negligible. It's like, you know, 10 million, 20 million. So if you're happy to pay, you know, 4.5 billion. Surely you can you can afford you know 20 billion 20 million, um, and you know like being able to do the attack just for you know one day or one week or uh, one month or even a whole year, um, you know that that's that that's totally possible once you already made the investment of getting five billion dollars um, of 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 hash rate. Let's talk about that the engine
0: then the horsepower. So because because I think this is where you're leading to. It's like the question in my mind after I hear that is. Okay, how is that possible? How is Ethereum providing more economic security with with less total market cap? It's like it's a lower value asset from a market cap perspective compared to to Bitcoin. So how is this even possible?
2: Right. Um, so I guess this goes this goes back to the kind of the next point um, after we cover um, economic security is economic efficiency, right? So it turns out that you know skipping ahead, that Ethereum is Roughly, you know 20 times more fuel efficient than than Bitcoin so you know you get more bang for the buck so in, in, in ethereum you know if you if you have one dollar of fuel let's say you get you know twenty dollars of, 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 of security uh, in Bitcoin you put in one dollar of fuel you get one dollar of economic security um, you know one of the reasons why even just out of the gate, um, uh, Ethereum is, is is more secure than Bitcoin is is due to this efficiency, which we can talk about uh, later.
1: I think an important point I want to bring up is the, the way that this interacts, the way that the engine interacts with the money is extremely salient here. Because with the Ethereum economy, Ethereum, which r- runs on Ether, and the Bitcoin economy runs on Bitcoin. And, it, uh, and when we were talking about how do you charge in a unit, how do you make Bitcoin have more value or how do you make Ether have more value? It's by buying it and and not selling it, right? So the ratio of buys to sells is how you charge the battery. But if your economic engine of Bitcoin requires 15 times as much value to achieve the same result as Ethereum does, be under proof of stake, that means you have to discharge 15 times as much Bitcoin versus Ether, right? So you are selling because Bitcoin miners receive Bitcoins and then they sell them to pay for electricity and hardware. And so as as a result of the way that the Bitcoin uh, engine is designed, it discharges 15 times faster the rate of value than the Ethereum economic engine under proof of stake. It it forcibly sells BTC, the asset, on the secondary market, which is like the battery of the unit, the unit battery of Bitcoin leaking because of the persistent selling. Did I get that right?
2: Yes. So if we assume that there's no transaction fees, then it's exactly right. Let's assume that the engine is fully powered by the battery. Then, you know, for an equivalent amount of economic security, the proof-of-work engine is drawing power 20 times more than the the um the um, proof-of-stake engine um and so you know you could i guess you could compare this a little bit you know to to um you know electric cars versus gasoline cars so if you want to do i don't know 100 miles um you know it's going to cost you x x number of dollars to charge the battery and do 100 miles, if you're using electric car, if you're using fuel car, you're gonna have to buy, you know, 10x or whatever the number is, the multiple is. It just turns out that the the multiple between proof of work and proof of stake is 20. So um, even though uh, right now um, Bitcoin is kind of um, providing much more economic fuel to the engine than Ethereum is actually providing is getting as a result less economic security um, And you know w- one of the you know, my, my projections if I were to look into the future, um, I, I actually expect that the the Ethereum economic engine to be at least 10 times um, larger than, than, uh, than Bitcoin. One of the reasons here is that we're going to have more people staking. So for example, um, you know coinbase hasn't really launched yet. You know they, they're gonna bring in let's say 1 million extra, um, Ethereum to stake um, and then that's going to, to uh, increase the power of the engine um, and my, my expectation is that we'll get let's say 10% of all Ether or 20% of all Ether staking and that's going to dramatically in- increase uh, the economic security of the, of the Ethereum system and I guess another possibility is that the, the ratio of the, of the price of, of Ether relative to the price of Bitcoin you know will increase and if that happens you know that will also improve the relative uh size of these uh, uh, uh well the the relative uh, output power of these economic engines
0: so justin that increased economic value or that increased efficiency means that the ethereum economy can secure more on top of it right so when we think about um, all of the tokens, all of the assets, all of the in the future rollups and layer twos that are secured on top of Ethereum, um, you know, that value has a certain dollar amount, right? There are 85 billion or so DeFi tokens out there. Uh, right now, there's 30 billion-ish stable coins. All of these things have economic value. Um, but the Ethereum base layer needs to be able to secure that economic Value. And this, this goes to a concept I think you were talking about a little bit earlier, you hinted at, this load-to-power sort of ratio. And I, what I think you mean there is, maybe you can explain it further, is how large of an economy can the base layer actually secure? Can you get into load-to-power and talk about that?
2: Right, exactly. So the, the load-to-power, the load is kind of the economic load of the whole system, the, the whole economy that relies on this engine. So for, for Bitcoin, we have an economy of a size one trillion dollars and we have an, an engine economic security of of of, of five billion dollars. So the, the ratio is is two hundred. You know, the, the greater the ratio, the worse things are. And the reason is that um, the incentive for an attacker to attack the system is, is greater, right? So he o- the attacker only needs to expend, you know, $5 billion and they could potentially break a system of size $1 trillion. So really you want to be reducing that ratio as much as possible.
1: And I think the metaphor here is simply a truck towing something, right? So you have a car, you have a vehicle, it has torque. It has power, and then it also has a load that is pulling behind. And if that load is too big in relation to the power of that engine, that can cause misalignment or or misaligned incentives.
2: It will cause you know choking and, and um, stalling. You know the engine will stall. It's not you know capable of of, of pulling the load. Um, it's not adequate for the amount of load. And you know one of the, the scary things with Bitcoin is that the, the issuance is going to zero. And if the transaction fees can't compensate for the reduction in issuance, um, then, you know, this, this ratio is just going to get worse and worse and worse. So, you know, let's imagine, you know, a, a success scenario for Bitcoin. Let's say that it, it reaches the, the market cap of gold, let's say, you know, $12, $12 trillion. Um, now, if, if there's no issuance, it needs to get all of its, its economic fuel from transaction fees. Now, let's assume every single transaction on average pays a hundred dollars in transaction fees. Now, there's there's only, I think, 120 million um, transactions uh, per year. So, you know, that, that gives us a, a, a low to ratio of roughly a thousand to one, right? So, over time, even in like like very conservative uh, estimates, I I'm I'm expecting the ratio to worsen from two hundred to one up to a thousand to one. One of the 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 good news in in Ethereum is that like we I, I'm expecting let's say ten percent of all the ETH staked, all the ETH to be staking, and so here it's very easy to calculate the ratio, right? Because it's just going to be ten to one, right? So if you look at all the ETH out there. Um, there's going to be 10 times more ETH out there than there is ETH staking. So the ratio is 10 to 1. But actually, as, as, you, as you said, uh, David, we shouldn't just look at ETH because that's the, not the only thing that Ethereum is securing. It's, it's securing also all sorts of, of, of DeFi and, and non-ETH assets. And so you know, let's, let's, let's make some sort of projections. You know, Let's say that DeFi is 10 times as large as the, the Ethereum um, economy, the ETH economy. Then you know the ratio worsens to hundred to one, but it's still nowhere near the one thousand to one that that this this projection uh, would give us. So Justin, when you describe this this load to power concept, and as David was
0: talking about it, I, I get this mental image of like a a pickup truck just trying to haul a massively large trailer, and it gets to this hill, and it just it just can't. It's just not enough like throttle to be able to 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 make it up this this hillside or this mountain. Can we talk about what actually happens? So if Bitcoin gets to a place where it has an a thousand to one ratio in terms of the amount of of value inside of it versus its economic security, right? Um, what what practically happens in a transaction? So I we can I think see glimmers of this when you use uh, lower economic security chains like um, right. uh, Bitcoin's Satoshi's vision is one. I mean, I think exchanges, they, they will sometimes take days or even weeks to confirm transactions from very low economic security chains is because they need all of those blocks to to come through before they'll they'll actually like certify that the the transaction is value and is valid and can't be double spent. Is that sort of what we're talking about here? Is in in a Bitcoin that is way overloaded here, the transaction spe- speeds will slow down, or at least n- not transaction speeds. Maybe I should say confirmation times will slow down. Settlement guarantees.
1: Settlement assurances. Right. Exactly.
2: Um, it's actually worse than that. Um, in the in the worst case, so. It, you know let's imagine that that Bitcoin becomes systemically relevant for the internet and the world right it's like a, let's say it's a hundred trillion dollar kind of asset um, you know if you if you put yourself in the shoes of a, of a government like 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 China or the United States you think to yourself okay I have the power to manipulate the economy of the internet this one 100 trillion dollar beast and I only have to spend what 10 billion dollars you know it's like it's like a no-brainer right I'm obviously going to you know my, my military budget is like hundred times that or you know a thousand times that um, I'm obviously going to you know to to, to spend that that 10 billion dollars to to have control over this this world economy um, so yeah if we want to look in terms of the the long-term success basically you should think of of the the load as being the the, the carrot, kind of the incentive for the attacker the 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 bigger the load the more the more kind of value there is to potentially e- extract and steal and manipulate and do all sorts of, of of bad things it's actually worse than just being conservative in terms of uh, confirmation times um, you know it, it, it could just simply break the system I mean it's actually shocking right that Um, there's only $5 billion securing Bitcoin. Like a a government like like China or the United States could definitely pull this off and, and break Bitcoin as it is today. Hey
1: Bankless Nation, we told you guys that this was going to be an epic episode and the epicness does not stop. Coming up next, we talk about how a monetary premium gives a boost to the economic fuel for Ethereum and how that adds security to the Ethereum economy. We also talk about how this Ethereum engine also has the power of invisibility. It actually can't be detected by nation states. We also ask Justin about what the resultant product is of all these different optimizations of Ethereum economics. And then lastly, we finish up with a conversation about sound money culture in Ethereum and whether or not Ethereum has always been a sound money culture all along. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode, but before we go any further, we have to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible.
0: If you want to live a bankless life, you've got to get yourself a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is a one two punch. It's both an Ethereum smart contract wallet and a Visa card that lets you spend the money you hold in your Ethereum account anywhere Visa is accepted. This is super cool. You can swipe your card at the coffee shop, at the gas station, When you do, you're paying with crypto, all without a bank. This has been the crypto vision since day one, and it's here. Monolith also offers on-ramps for getting your fiat into the world of DeFi, so it's trivial to top up your Monolith card whenever you need to, You can top it up with ETH, DAI, or DeFi tokens. And because Monolith is native DeFi infrastructure, the money that you hold not only never touches a bank, but it retains its DeFi superpowers. So you can swap assets on Uniswap. You can earn yield in DeFi protocols. You've never had a Visa card like this before. Go to monolith.xyz now and sign up to get your Monolith card. That's monolith.xyz.
1: If you are looking for a product that connects your fiat bank account with DeFi tokens and products, you need to download the Dharma mobile app. Dharma is a non-custodial smart contract wallet and comes with a bridge that connects you right into your bank account. Dharma is the fastest and most efficient wallet between your fiat and your bank account and any token on Uniswap or even any vault in Yearn. With Dharma, you can get over $25,000 per week into the DeFi universe, and you can do it non-custodially. If you or anyone you know is hot on DeFi and you're trying to get your money into a DeFi investment, Dharma is the place to go. Signing up and going through KYC is an absolute breeze. It took me just under three minutes, and after signing into my bank account via Plaid, I am now just one transaction away from any token that Uniswap has to offer go to www.dharma.io, that's D-H-A-R-M-A.io, download the DARPA app and get yourself unbanked today.
0: I want to draw another connection here because this is something that we've talked about on the Bankless podcast. And I think you're pointing a, a fine tip on when we brought on Charlie Noyes from, from Paradigm, we talked about this, this concept of a, an and a base layer like ethereum the importance of monetary premium right because monetary premium as we talked about earlier is sort of this this magic meme power uh if your the underlying base asset is viewed as a store of value then it just gives you an insta boost to your economic security right and so we had kind of this this not a debate but a discussion about where like my my take is kind of that the the winning defi platform has to have the highest amount of economic security, right? In order to host the, the 20x uh, DeFi valuation that, that you were just talking about, Justin, right? So at some level, all layer one chains are in this competition for monetary premium. And if you are trying to be a layer one chain and your base asset is not money, right? So I'll, I'll throw one out there. Uh, love the Cosmos ecosystem, fantastic projects, fantastic team. Atoms are not competing as a base money. They're not competing as a, as a base store of value, like the project teams will, will tell you that. Um, but if you're not, you're at a disadvantage because there's a lower threshold of economic security that you can guarantee and settle on top of it. Is this a conclusion that you would draw as well from, from the discussion so far that it's vitally important that a layer one asset base layer asset have a monetary premium in order for it to secure the most amount of economic activity on top
2: you know absolutely um very well said um you know this is part of the 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 shelling point aspect right you have various options for what can be you know money and what can be stores of value um and you know as a community, you know, we're going to go through the catalog and look at what, is, what has the best properties and security is going to be, you know, one of the very top of the list. Um, and if if your success scenario means having a low to uh, to power ratio of a thousand or more, then that's, that's scary, you know, um, because you know, let's, let's say that, that the ratio is thousand to one. So let's say that your economy is a hundred trillion dollars. That means that your security is a hundred billion, right, a thousand times less. That's still peanuts in the context of, of a, a, a government like, like China or, or the US.
0: Justin, we were talking about this uh, potential attack on Bitcoin by a nation state level actor, but proof of work versus proof of stake Offers another property too, and that that is kind of the the property of uh, being able to bounce back, almost like an anti-fragile type property. I believe Vitalik has talked about this on the Bankless podcast in the past a little bit. Um, can you talk about how a Bitcoin proof of work type system would recover from such an attack versus Ethereum and proof of stake?
2: Right. So this is one of the the places where the 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 improvement between Ethereum and Bitcoin is not just 10x or 100x, it's kind of infinity. It's like, it's like black and white, zero to one. So let's assume that there is an attack. Um, some sort of um, government does attack Bitcoin. Well, it turns out that it can permanently attack Bitcoin. It's kind of game over. It's, it's, a, it's a knockout. Um, and the reason is that you can do what Vitalik calls a spawn camp attack is that you can just repeatedly attack the system over and over and over again. And like the key issue is that um, with Bitcoin, you don't really know who is attacking you, right? Like the the mining power is kind of anonymous, but maybe even more fundamentally, the other big problem is that even if you knew who was attacking you, you have no way to defend yourself. So you have no way to to, uh, kind of destroy that mining power. But with, with Ethereum, we have we have these two superpowers. The first superpower is that every Eve staker is identified. So you have a, you know, a pub key um, which identifies you as a as a as a staker. And whenever you make an action, whenever you make an attestation, for example, which is one of these votes in the context of proof of stake, we know where this vote came from with crypto cryptographic you know, um, security. Hang on.
1: I just want to rephrase that really quick. When somebody mines a Bitcoin block, they publish it to a network, but anyone can publish it. But in proof of stake, when you attest to a block, that attestation comes from a specific address with a specific amount of ETH in that address. When, when, When you say identifying the person, or we're not identifying, well, it's not, this isn't KYC. This isn't like naming a person. This is just the stake which is where the security comes from, comes from a very specific address, which is not true with Bitcoin. Bitcoin validation comes from miners, which don't actually exist anywhere inside the Bitcoin protocol. It's just anyone can publish a block. So just you could be a Bitcoin miner and you could find a block and then you could send that, that to me. You could send me that information and I can publish that block. But it's you still have the miners. I just wanted to make that, that clarifying point.
2: Absolutely, yeah. There's no KYC involved. This is just the, the pseudo-anonymous identification that we have, for example, in, in, in Bitcoin and, and Ethereum with the, um, with the addresses, right? You hold some Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that you have to do KYC to, to hold Bitcoin at this specific address. Not only can we identify where the, the economic security comes from, but we have this other superpower in Ethereum, which is that we can slash so we can penalize. So the idea of, of proof of stake is that you, you put something at stake, right? You um which is if, for example, and if you do something bad, we'll just remove that if. So this would be the equivalent of setting on fire, you know, the the, the Bitcoin mining rigs. And so we actually have two separate types of slashing mechanisms. We have what I guess you could call layer one slashing. Which is that within the protocol itself, if you do something which is obviously wrong, so for example, if you do two conflicting votes, two conflicting attestations, then you know, we have a mechanism to automatically slash you for doing that. Um, and that will deal with you know, many of the, the worst attacks out there. Um, you know, for example, um, if an attacker tries to create two finalized blockchains which are inconsistent, then we can prove mathematically, at least one third of the of the ETH stake will get slashed. So a very significant portion of the ETH will get slashed. Once you slash that kind of malicious ETH, then as you said, it's anti-fragile. The, the system is self-repairing because now there's less malicious folks. And, you know, we're, we're left with, with the, the, the honest folks.
1: The people that were malicious got penalized and the people that were honest did not. And by proxy were rewarded because it's reverse dilution. It's the elimination of ether from the people that were bad. And then therefore the people that were good own a larger percentage of of the Ether, which means that the Ethereum is moving into the hands of of naturally moving into the hands of people that are good and honest.
2: When you look at the um, um, economic game, you know, in context of game theory, you can look at the the game in in two different ways. You can look at it as kind of a one shot game. You know, can the attacker break the system? Yes or no, if you were to play the game once. Uh, And then there's the notion of an iterated game, which is what if you play the game multiple times? so, you know, for example, imagine that you're playing poker, you could play one hand of poker and that would be this, this one shot kind of game. Or you could play, the, you know, a thousand hands of poker. And, you know, when you have this iterated game, you know, things change because you could learn about your opponent, you can mix things up and whatnot. And it turns out that uh, for Bitcoin, the, the, the one shot game is a knockout. So you can't play, you can't play the game anymore once you've been knocked out. On the other hand, with Ethereum, every time you get you get attacked, you know that's pretty bad. Um, you know I don't want to down, downplay this. So but um, you know the 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 system was was broken temporarily. It was attacked, um, but it has this. So you know for some period of time, let's say a few days, there will be chaos. Right, because people won't know what is the real finalized change because there's these two inconsistent finalized change. But after you know, the, the chaos settles a few days later, the, the system will be in a stronger position, and now we can start again with the, the second round of the game. So let's say that the attacker wants to attack again, right? Well, now he needs to go at, acquire more ETH and then do the attack again and then get slashed again. And every time you do that, as you say, the... the um, you know, the amount of ETH in circulation reduces and reduces, and you can actually put a cap on the number of times that the system can be attacked. So let's say, for example, that there's 10% of all ETH that is staking, and they're honest, so they don't intend to attack the system. Well, there's only, you know, nine times that the attacker could do the attack, right? Because he would need to buy at least 10 million uh, ETH. And then every time he does the attack, he loses the 10 million ETH and needs to rebuy another 10 million. And there's only 90 million there. So in the worst case scenario, Ethereum would get attacked nine times. So that's a very nice property, which I guess you could call engine repairability. This engine, if it does break and you know things happen in the real life, uh, at least you can repair it. Uh, Bitcoin, the engine breaks, you just scrap it. And importantly, under
1: proof of stake, if somebody, if there's if there's a uh, 100 million supply of ether and there's 10, uh, 10 million ether staked, uh, an attacker needs to match that with another 10 million ether. But because of the nature of proof of stake and slashing, we can punish that person. So they better have gotten an equal amount of value off of that chaos that they created. Otherwise, why would they do this? But the important thing is like, A, A, there's only nine possible times that they could do this before the world runs out of ether. But every time that they do this, the value of ether on the secondary market goes up because this person bought 10 million ether. And, and then they deleted it and then they bought 10 million more and then they deleted it. And so it actually becomes increasingly costly because the cost of Ether goes up. The value that you needed to sell to buy that Ether keeps going up every time you t- try and do this. So not only is there reducing Ether available to you to attack the network, it's also getting more expensive to purchase that Ether.
2: And not only do we have this anti-fragility at the iterated game level, but we also have this anti-fragility property at the single, single game um, level. And the reason is, okay, you want to you wanna acquire you know, 10 million ETH, you, know, you buy your first million, and then your second million is going to cost you more than your first million because the price has gone up, et cetera, et cetera. And this is actually the opposite of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has economies of scale for the attacker. The larger the attacker is, um, the cheaper he has to spend per terahash per second. In Bitcoin, you have this economy of scale. The more Ether you want to buy, the more expensive it's going to get to you. So let's say that in Bitcoin, you're, you're Apple, right? Um, if, if you're going to manufacture you know, 150 million terahashes per second of, of, of hash rates, you bet they're going to pay much less than $30, right? Because the $30, that's, you know, including like the profit margin from Bitmain and including all sorts of, of inefficiencies. But if Apple were to do it, you know, maybe they'd only have to spend, let's say, you know, $2 billion. Like one of the reasons, for example, is that Apple has priority access to TSMC's leading node. So TSMC is like... Um, those the company Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company that produces state of the art silicon for for the whole world, and whenever you have a new node, so for example the three nanometer node that's um, that's up, um, Apple has monopoly kind of access, and they have um, and every time you improve the node, um, you get better power efficiency, so that your your your, your cost per per tera hash um, kind of um, uh I- improves and you know there's all sorts of other economies of scale uh, that you have uh when you when you attack bitcoin which is the exact opposite to ethereum where if you want to attack it you have this economies of scale uh, from the point of view of the attacker so justin it, it just strikes me that the
0: the reason bitcoin has never been attacked or ethereum on, on proof of work for that matter has never been attacked is because uh no one's tried like nation states just haven't tried. That's the only reason. I mean, what you're saying, I think, is in the case of proof of work with Bitcoin, if I am a bad gov agency, let's say I'm bad gov U.S., uh, I've got Apple that's located within my jurisdiction. I go, I team up with Apple. I spend five billion or so on ASIC hardware that they manufacture for me, and because I'm making such a large purchase, they give me twenty percent off. So thanks a lot, guys. It's you know less than four four billion now. And then I go and I attack the Bitcoin network. And then this point about repairing the engine and anti-fragility with proof of work, because I own all of those ASICs, uh, there's nothing, there's no way for Bitcoin to to recover using the same hashing algorithms. Is how I'm understanding it. Now, what what happened? What would happen though if Bitcoin decided to just use a different hashing algorithms algorithm and like you know kill all of those ASICs. We've seen Monero switch around their their hashing algorithms in the past. Is that a path for them to to get out of this conundrum that BadGov us has caused?
2: Yes. Um, so actually, I I simplified the situation a little bit when I said that Bitcoin is a one shot game. It's actually a two shot game, and the reason is that the first shot you kill the double SHA-256 ASICs. They're they're no no longer worthwhile. You move to a new proof-of-work system. But what is this proof-of-work system going to be based on? It necessarily has to be based on commodity hardware. And by commodity hardware, I mean something like GPUs or or CPUs. Um, You know, you can't go manufacture ASICs for another proof-of-work. There there just isn't enough time to to organize all of this. Um, And... And then the attacker, he simply has to do the same thing, but this time with commodity hardware. So just buy sufficiently many GPUs and then and then that's your second shot. The second shot is the real knockout.
1: So it sounds like that if we really want Bitcoin to be its maximum potential, the only, if we, the, it would be a much more radical change and it would probably have to be proof of stake.
2: Yes, so that is one option um to migrate to proof of stake i guess another option and this is something we discussed in the previous podcast is simply for bitcoin to use the ethereum blockchain as its base layer for security
1: which is using proof of stake just in a different way yes
0: <laughs> well okay so justin i just just one point on this right because there is this we don't have to get into the to the concept of um strong like weak subjectivity right but what, one thing that bitcoiners will point out is that hey the great thing about bitcoin is that the 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 token the staking token which is Asics plus energy of the bitcoin network is external to the system right so uh, we can always restart it we just have to funnel more energy into it and more like like a hashing algorithm They, they see this as a virtue rather than a um you know, a, uh, a, like a flaw in the engine design. Right. Do you, do you think there is a virtue here in having the, the, the economic token that powers the Bitcoin system be sort of external, be ASIC plus energy consumption? Is there any merit? Is there a trade-off here that we want to highlight?
2: Yes. So, um, you know, as is, you know, almost always the case in engineering, there are trade-offs. There's things that you improve on and there's things that you have to, to, to give up. Um, now we haven't gone through the, the whole list of advantages of proof of stake, but let's let's jump uh, ahead and look at the the, the, the tradeoffs um, From what I can tell there's there's three different trade-offs. One of them, as you said, is this notion of objectivity versus weak subjectivity. Um, another one is the concept of of complexity of the your engine um, and the the other one is this The distributive nature of Bitcoin, so I guess we could go through these trade-offs one by one. The first one, which is the easiest to understand is the engine complexity the The Bitcoin proof of work is extremely simple. It's so beautifully simple. it's you could write pseudocode for it in like ten lines of code. Um, and that's that's an amazing property to have, you know simplicity. Um, you know unfortunately, um you know ethereum is two orders of magnitude more complex than, than proof of work. So, um, you know, you could write the, the state transition function for the beacon chain in a a thousand lines of code. Uh, so, you know, that's roughly a hundred times more complexity. If you measure complexity in terms of lines of code, um, than, than, than Bitcoin, you know, that's, that's a real trade-off. The good news is that I guess we've already paid the complexity cost, right? We've we've proved that it, it is possible to overcome this complexity. We have four different uh, production-grade implementations, um, you know, securing the Beacon Chain right now, and and this complexity is is manageable.
0: And this is found in other places in engineering. I mean, a computer is what a hundred times more complicated than a calculator. Let's say, right? It's you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing.
2: Right, that's a great complexity. point. yeah, there's astounding amounts of complexity you know in your iPhone. Um, you know millions of man hours have gone into designing iPhones. Um, yeah, for sure. I guess it's just a necessary evil um, to 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 innovation. Another aspect is kind of the, the fuel emissions. So it turns out that there is one advantage of of, of proof of work in terms of the fuel emissions, uh, it, the engine emissions is that it's a forcing function for miners to sell their Bitcoin. And this has a, it's a distributive kind of forcing function. So this is great for distribution. And it's a property that the proof of stake doesn't have in the sense that to become a staker, you need to have ETH to, to start with. And then that the ETH stays with you. I um, mean, you, you kind of accrue ETH, but you don't, you're not forced to sell it. And, and the reason you're not forced to sell it is because proof of stake is so efficient that you don't have to sell it to, to pay your, your, your bills, you know, your electricity bills and whatnot. Um,
0: but know yeah, that is. So Justin, I've heard one manifestation of this as uh, a Bitcoin maximalist or you know Bitcoiners heavy proof of work will say well, proof of stake just installs a permanent plutocracy, would be a ter- a way that that's been
2: described. Right. Um, I mean the the way that. Um, the way that I see it is that we we kind of get the best of both worlds with proof of work and proof of stake in terms of distribution. So we've we've had the five years, you know, probably six years of proof of work. We've had plenty of distribution, um, and then, you know, this this hybrid approach where we, after the distribution phase, we move uh, we move away from the distribution phase. Then with proof of stake is is. Um, and then the, the final point, which is the objectivity point, and I put it at the end because it's a, it's a subtle point. Um, so, okay, what is this objectivity all about? And if we were to take the engine metaphor, I think of it in terms of jumpstartability, okay, right? So the way the way that it works is that you have this master engine, right, which is meant to be replicated all around the world and when you sync up to the blockchain, you kind of want to, you have your local copy of the engine, and you want to to get to the same state as kind of the master state. So you, in a way, you kind of want your your local copy to be jump started by the main engine. Now it turns out that for for Bitcoin, the length of the the jump lead the cable is is infinite you know you can go all the way from genesis um so basically you could sync from genesis and you know you you'd get to the you'd still be able to sync to this um master engine even even though you started from genesis in ethereum you have a constraint on the length of the the jump starting lead you know these cables that you need to connect between the two engines Um, it's limited to three months right so if you've been disconnected for more than 3 months then you you won't be able in a purely objective way to sync up to the engine what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to ask a friend or ask a group of you know semi-trusted sources you know what is this what is the state of things and and then take that as a as an extra assumption uh, that you have
1: now and so B- bitcoiners hate this because this is compromising with trust, right? Um, And and I would say that Ethereans are more okay with this because it's, in our opinion, it's more pragmatic. Like, I could probably find someone I trust who's got the state of Ethereum, where Bitcoiners are like, you always, 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 always need to be verifiably going back to Genesis. And Ethereans are like, well, you can just go find someone who who, like that you can trust and download the state from them. And this is the kind of the trade-off that we've made
2: yeah and it, it turns out that if you look at the, the the practice as opposed to the theory, they're essentially equivalent and why are they equivalent? The reason is that as a bitcoiner you do have some hidden sources of trust now for example, one source of trust is when you go download the client you're not going to read every single line of code you're down, you know you're trusting you know bitcoin.org or bitcoin.com whichever website you've, you've downloaded the client from and you know, you're also um, trusting um, what I call the seed nodes, right? So the very first time you connect to the network, to the peer-to-peer network, you're gonna you're gonna connect to so-called um, bootstrap nodes or seed nodes um, that are gonna allow you to connect to the broader system. But if for for some reason your seed nodes are, are compromised, then you're gonna be in a little you know fake universe that could be controlled by the attacker. So there's there's various uh, hidden Trust assumptions in Bitcoin, which means that in practice we have weak subjectivity. Weak subjectivity, anyway. So it's on an equal footing, in a, from a practical standpoint.
1: All right, Justin, I want to return. That, that was we we just went on a, a little bit of a detour talking about how these how these engines work. I want to return back to the metaphor of a truck pulling a load up a hill, right? And the the truck is the engine. The load is the economy. The fuel is the money that we put into this engine. And there's different types of fuels. Can you walk us through that metaphor?
2: Yes. So as I mentioned, there's two types of fuels. There's fuel A, which I'll call grade A uh, because it's the best of the best in terms of for security is issuance. So basically it's energy that's drawn from the battery. And why is it grade A fuel? It's grade A fuel because it's predictable, it's low volatility, and you can set it to have a guaranteed minimum for security. And then there's this grade B fuel, which is n- not so great, you know, unrefined fuel, if you will, um, which are the transaction fees. And the, this is energy that you receive from your solar panel. And the energy from you, that you receive from the solar panel, the transaction fees are unpredictable highly volatile, possibly slash likely insufficient for security. And even worse, the transaction fees have this subtle property that they're stealable in the sense that if you have, and this I, we briefly talked about it in the last podcast, but if you have um, a, uh, a a block with transactions, uh, th- these transactions will pay transaction fees. And the next miner is incentivized to steal those 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 transactions and the associated fees as opposed to building on top of the block so you, that leads to chain instability because these fees can be stolen This is
0: minor extractable value which you know backless listeners may be already familiar with
2: exactly yes um and you know there was this this episode i think with you know the the binance chain when. For example, they, they got hacked, and you know there was like rumors that maybe you know Binance would you know reveal the private keys associated to the hack, and then you know there's an incentive for miners to basically rewind the hack and then give themselves the money, um, and you know basically stealing the fee. Um, anyway. Hang on. No, Does, I do, do want to go into that.
1: So there, there was an yeah. episode where Binance, Binance was hacked for like 3,000 yeah. Bitcoins or something. And there was it was like $15 million. My numbers might be off. And there was a big conversation about how CZ could public, publicize the private keys to, uh, to the Bitcoin address. And that would instigate a, a minor competition to start building a new longest chain on the uh, at the block of the moment that the bitcoins were stolen because the miners could go and and go and reclaim those stolen btc right so the the conversation and if there was 15 million dollars stolen and it it would t- there was a 3 day window for this to be an economically viable activity to do because at the end of 3 days it was going to cost more than 15 million dollars to go back 3 days and so there's a 3 day window where there was this possible time where CZ could publish the Bitcoin private keys, and then all of a sudden the game theory is on, where the Bitcoin miners are all in competition to go back to claim this block for themselves and take those BTCs for the miners instead of the attackers, right? And this is a this is where the conversation about good feel and bad feel comes from, where uh, fees or minor extractable values are highly volatile and not dependable versus issuance and if you don't have issuance that dwarfs fees then your then your engine can be unstable
2: exactly and actually you, you you're right so grade b you know i said transaction fees but it's actually more general than that it's as you said, it's MEV, and you can. There's actually different types of, of grades of B, like B plus and B minus, and like you can say B plus is you know the transaction fees. You know they're not so volatile, but then you have the extru- the extreme what I call spike volatility. So you know, every once in a while you have this huge spike, which it would be the Binance case. You know you just have three thousand Bitcoin or whatever it was, kind of as one big spike, and that would be the B minus uh, type of fuel. Uh, which is the, the most explosive and most most dangerous type of, of, of fuel. And so one of the, the questions you want to ask yourself as a designer, as an economic designer for these blockchains is what kind of fuel do you want to put in your engine? And you know obviously, well o- it's obvious in hindsight, but I guess it wasn't obvious for Satoshi is you want to maximize the use of grade A fuel, right And you want to minimize the use of grade B fuel um, for security. And so what we're doing in Ethereum is we're connecting the battery di- directly to to well we are connecting the engine directly to the battery. So that gives us that gives us this nice great A fuel. And then we have MEV minimization techniques. The you know the the main one being uh, EIP 1559 where we take this f- great B fuel and we, we, we destroy it. You know, we just don't want it to touch the engine. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's actually a, a, a liability to have the, the great B fuel. And then Bitcoin has taken the exact opposite approach, which is we're gonna, over time, we're gonna exponentially decrease the amount of great A fuel that we're giving um, to, to our engine, right? The issuance is going to zero. All the good stuff is going away for security. And, you know, we're just going to hope that this grade B fuel is going to be good enough uh, to to power the engine. Justin,
0: that's always been crazy to me because arguably actually right now, Bitcoin has better grade A fuel than Ethereum has because it has a stronger monetary premium. It has a stronger narrative meme value, right? So its grade A fuel is worth more on a percentage basis than uh, Ether's grade A fuel. And yet Bitcoin is the network with this, wonderful premium grade A fuel that is forsaking that and going to this far lower, poor quality grade B fuel. And I, I love that analogy you were talking about. It's like solar panels, right? It's like solar panels on a cloudy day, just like, they don't work very well, right? And this is like solar panels on steroids. This is as if when you have an episode like the Binance one you're describing, as if sun someday the sun is magically 100 times stronger and like right. really gives you a ton of energy, right? So it's but like solar for panels for five on steroids. only for five seconds. Or only for 10 but, minutes. Yeah, for five seconds. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. th- that's always been curious to me and, and not something that I think most Bitcoiners internally rationalize, maybe, that they're, that, that they're swapping out fuel for their economic engine midstream and what the hazards of that might be
2: yeah i mean the my mental analogy is imagine an electric car remove the battery who needs a battery to power the engine just put a solar panel like and then you know you drive through a tunnel and then the, the, the car just stalls or maybe you know as you said it's cloudy and you know you, you can only do 10 miles an hour um, and this is something that has been you know predicted academically for bitcoin so for example there's you know this this paper that, that looks at the instability of the blockchain once you rely on transaction fees. One of the the observations that they make is you know we have a dip in transaction fees, for example, during the weekend, right? So it what will happen is that during the weekend some miners would just not be profitable, so they turn off their miners, and then the block times you know become you know 20 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour block times, and then you know doing doing. Uh, peak hours, I guess it would it would compensate, you know, with you know five minute block times or three minute block times. Um, it would get really really funky very quickly.
1: I want to take these metaphors all the way to the very end. And so we have, we have two vehicles, two engines towing two different loads, right? Um, and Bitcoin does have a battery but it has a battery that it can't recharge because it only issues BTC, right? It doesn't, there is no long-time issuance. And so once this 21 million BTC is completely issued, the Bitcoin battery is completely drained and it never gets recharged. And so the solar panel for the Bitcoin Uh, vehicle gets plugged right into the engine, right? And the Bitcoin engine is completely subject to the whims of the Bitcoin economy. Is Bitcoin generating high fees today or is it generating low fees today? And imagine like a truck going up a hill towing a load, and it doesn't really know how much energy it's going to be able to receive like in a moment's notice, like in in, in the next mile and the next mile after that, it just runs on transaction fees. And if the transaction fees go into the engine, then the engine can push it forward according to how much transaction fees there are. But it doesn't have that sustainability, that assurance is that it's going to be able to get up that hill because transaction fees are volatile. Also, if one block comes in with like 10 times as much transaction fees as the next, the next block, it can't actually imagine just like stomping on the gas pedal and then immediately releasing it. Like, that's not how you get an engine to go up a hill. Like, that's not sustainable. And so, what Ethereum has done with putting this uh, solar panel into the battery into the engine is it allows that volatility in. Um, in transaction fees to get filtered through the battery first and stored in the battery. And then the battery trickles the energy at a sustainable rate, at a dependable rate that we can count on within long term assurances into the future. And it's that battery that depresses and dampens the volatility in transaction fees and allows that Ethereum, the proof of stake engine of Ethereum, to consistently climb that, that economic hill with its load. How, how is that metaphor?
2: Yeah, absolutely. the 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 economic battery is um, a, a dampener um, of the of the energy. I mean, one of the things you said, just a slight correction. At the very beginning, you you said that um, when there's no more issuance, the battery is fully depleted. Um, it's not that it's fully depleted; is that that you you can't d- discharge it anymore. So it's kind of the, the opposite in the sense that it becomes the the perfect battery. If you in in kind of in isolation in a vacuum, it would be kind of an ideal um, store value mechanism uh, because there wouldn't be this leak in terms of issuance. Um, but the, the the problem is that you can't consider this battery in isolation. You have to consider the whole system. You know, one thing that that strikes me, Justin, is
0: that people forget Satoshi was an engine designer. it, it it's almost become like this. Narrative that suddenly like in the beginning there was Bitcoin and it was perfect At the at the very outset and the engine was perfect and it was bestowed upon humanity, right? And then Satoshi disappeared because it was finished, right? But the reality is Satoshi was a crypto economic engine designer and This was his first kind of iteration the model T of the engine it, it, it it's kind of a model T. I in all of the, I guess, religious warfare and tribalism, Justin, I think people forget that this is a human being designing an engine. This is not gold that is an asset bestowed to humanity via nature. This is an engine design.
2: Absolutely. Right. So this is economic engineering and you know the, the, the progress of engineering, generally speaking, is, is exponential. Um, and, you know, 12 years is a lifetime, especially in the blockchain world. And as you said, this was the very first design. And, you know, it was heavily inspired by by gold. And, you know, we have this skeuomorphic idea. Um, and I think Satoshi used gold because that was the best the physical world could pr- provide. But once you enter this new paradigm of, you know, digital money, then suddenly the design space increases uh, dramatically and you know things happen that are totally unexpected like to give you another analogy of skewmorphism in the DeFi world is decentralized exchanges that we use an order book right the way that we have exchanges is with order books so the way that you you do it on the blockchain is you try and uh, try and build an order book on the blockchain turns out that's an utter failure that, that doesn't work for for the various reasons um, well, and then you, out, out of nowhere comes this new concept of AAMMs. Um, and this, you know, this innovation is, is part of the, this, this new design space that's been opened up. Um, and once you detach yourself from your, your preconceptions, in a way, of the past, then you can really open yourself to the, the world of possibilities that, that this new space offers.
1: So Justin, we are actually just getting started with the comparisons here because there's so much more to talk about. And I think uh, something that might blow people's minds is that Ethereum doesn't have just one engine. It has multiple engines and it can start up even more engines or power down engines. Uh, Can we talk about uh, how Ethereum has multiple engines?
2: Yeah. So this is um, implementation diversity. So it turns out that sometimes engines have have bugs. Um, so, um, and this you know this has this happens to all blockchains. It happened to Bitcoin. Bitcoin has had various bugs. Ethereum had various bugs. And one way to um, hedge against these these bugs to protect yourself is to have multiple implementations. And so, um, you know, you can think of it as a as a helicopter, right? We, do you want a dual engine helicopter or do you want a single engine helicopter, right? Uh, I, would, I would want to fly on a dual-engine helicopter if possible, uh, just in case the first engine has some sort of problem. Um, and in Ethereum, we have uh, you know, a four-way redundancy. We have these four separate implementations, four different languages, four different you know, teams in different parts of the world, um, which is in stark contrast to basically the, the, the monopoly that uh, Bitcoin Core has. Uh, in, in, in Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, this is not only about bugs, but, you know, this is also about all sorts of external pressures, you know, like bribing, for example. You know, one possible attack scenario for the, the, the U.S. government is to give every uh, Bitcoin core developer a hundred million dollars uh, and to insert malicious code. You know, like <laughs> the, it, it would be, um, you know, a possible kind of attack, you um, there. Uh, whereas in, in Ethereum, we have you know, more, more diversity and more, more, more robustness um, there.
1: And we've actually already experienced this in Ethereum where uh, one of our engines went down and thankfully we had a secondary engine to keep Ethereum up and running. Can you talk about that scenario?
2: In the earlier days of, of Ethereum, um, there was a bug in, in GEF and GEF just became unusable. I think it was some sort of denial of service attack. Um, and had it not been for parity, had it not been for this backup engine, the Ethereum network would have suffered a very extended downtime because it took a long time to fix the the, the root issue, uh, you know, several days, and that would have you know shattered the confidence in in Ethereum in these very early days. Yay diversity! Um, I guess one kind of point here um, is that the way that we've gone ahead with the um, eve 2 uh, protocol is that we've designed a specification so this is kind of meant to be the, the the root of of trust in terms of what the design is and it's meant to be uh, maximally simple and readable and, and understandable and we've even gone as far as making the implementation executable so the 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 specification sorry is itself code um, and, and so that makes it easy for, for implementers to coordinate around the this this, this protocol. In, in Bitcoin, the way that it has um, evolved historically is that you have Bitcoin Core that came out, and it had various bugs, and there was no specification. So the only way that you could write an alternative implementation is, number one, you reverse engineer how this whole thing works, and number two, you need to be bug for bug compatible, right? Because if you're not bug for bug compatible, that's the possibility for a, a consensus failure. This, this, this friction of not having a specification and having to adhere to every single bug that is in Bitcoin. And there's, there's quite a few, um, you know, subtleties, um, has has meant that we we haven't really seen an alternative to Bitcoin coin Bitcoin.
1: And we've actually also, similarly how Ethereum had its bugs that... Uh, it experienced and then thankfully had a second client or a, or now in, in proof of stake, four clients. Uh, Bitcoin has also experienced uh, a, a fault in the Bitcoin code, a breaking of the engine, except it repaired right. that engine. It, it, thankfully, this happened very early in Bitcoin's history. I think in 2011 and maybe another one in 2013, my Bitcoin history
2: is it isn't too super sharp. Do
1: you, Can you tell us what happened there?
2: I think it was before my time in Bitcoin, there was an overflow bug, uh, you know, classic classic bug where you know, you're storing a balance in some, some number of bits, like 64 bits or whatever, and there's, there's an overflow, um, and then you, you kind of wrap around. And what that means is that um, you know, someone was able to, to craft a, a transaction which is essentially minted a huge amount of Bitcoin out of nowhere, like billions or trillions of, of, of Bitcoin. Um, because they they exploited that that overflow.
1: How did how did the system get get past this problem?
2: You know, it caused chaos for a few hours. I don't know exactly how many hours, but it was on the order of of twelve hours or twenty four hours. So, you know, the Bitcoin core developers were were very fast, and the the mining you know ecosystem was you know had a a rapid you know incident uh, incident response. But you know, they could have been a, a more subtle bug. Or there could have been many bugs that are triggered at the same time by an attacker. Or, and and you know, even, even 12 hours of downtime is kind of unacceptable. And, and beyond the downtime, there's, there's another issue, which is that now you have, you have potentially two forks which are legitimate. And you know, there's, there's this mantra in Bitcoin that after six confirmations, you, know, you have finality, and so, so you're happy. But you know, this is a way to basically bypass finality whereby as an attacker let's say you do a one billion dollar transaction six six blocks go through the you know your counterparty gives you one dollars worth of, of assets and then you, you you know you trigger this attack and then you can revert the, the six blocks of, of finality um so yeah it is it is scary and you know that, that's one of the reasons why we want uh, distribution I guess another aspect here is that in ethereum, the way that we achieve finality is for two thirds of the network to come to consensus on, on state. And so the ideal situation is where the stake, uh, the ETH stake, is equally distributed across the clients. So for example, 25%, 25% across all four clients. So that if if there is a bug in in, in, in one of the clients, then that's insufficient to, to reach the, the, the two thirds required to finalize. A, a faulty state. On that, on that note, kind of a, a quick PSA, it turns out that in practice Prism is uh, has more than 50% of the, of the nodes. So if you're running P- Prism, you know please consider uh, no longer running Prism, I guess. This is nothing against Prism per se, but it's just too popular um, and it would be good if other clients were more popular.
1: One aspect I'd like to talk about uh, with regards to all the client diversity in Ethereum is, is there is more choice and more options for people to use. And my my optimistic scenario is that all these clients will compete, right? You, When you stake your Ether to Ethereum, you need to choose a client. And those clients want to be chosen. And so they are competing to receive Ether to put their power into Ethereum, right? Because power... Power goes into the Ethereum economy via clients, and clients attract ether to be staked via their clients, so that they can power the system. Do you see these clients like? And competition is supposed to be good for the consumer, right? So do you see these? Do you see this competition aspect uh, being healthy for Ethereum, or do you perhaps seeing uh, a convergence on maybe just one or two clients in the long term because of you know monopolistic uh, tendencies? How do you see this playing out?
2: Right. So one of the advantages of competition. Well, I say of diversity is that each client can try and cater for a different niche. Um so for example, Nimbus, which is one of the clients, they cater for very low powered devices, you know, think m- mobile phones or Raspberry Pis. And you know, they can be the best at doing that. And then, you know, you could have Teku, for example, which is um geared towards like in um you know in in industrial grade um, you know, staking. Um and then you could have um, maybe Lighthouse, which is geared towards, <clears throat> you know, the, um, the individual staker, for example, um, I'm I'm hoping that, you know, they'll be able to find their, 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 their niches and that they will get distribution that way. Um, what you mentioned about competition is, is correct, though. So if, for example, there's one client which is able to, you know, aggregate attestations and include them on chain, like, much much better than the other clients then they when you're running this client as a a validator you're going to receive more rewards so there's an economic incentive for you to use that one client the good news is that um you know the clients all four clients are close to optimal in terms of um you know doing their duties and so they're all optimally receiving the rewards and we want to keep it that way Alright
1: guys, so we are almost done talking about the design of the Ethereum engine and the Ethereum vehicle. Uh, And of course, when we stitch all of these things together, we get something that's greater than the sum of the parts. But we have two very quick parts that we want to run through first. And that is, the first being stealth. And our, our truck that is pulling up a load up a hill also needs to be stealthy because these systems, these vehicles, are supposed to be sovereign state level resistance. And so stealth is a fantastic feature for vehicles to have that state level resistance. Think of F117 Nighthawk, the first ever stealth fighter, or all the investments that the US military has made into stealth vehicles. We want our economy, our vehicle, our engine to also be stealthy. Um, So so Justin, how is the Ethereum system, how is the Ethereum vehicle a stealth vehicle?
2: Um, I guess that comes down to the, the physical footprint. To become an Ethereum validator, all you need really is Ether, which is you know, purely in the digital world. There's no physical footprint for that. And then you need you know, a Raspberry Pi and an internet connection. And every, all the, the, um, the computational resources are very limited. You, know, you need very little power, very little computation, very little bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is in, in stark contrast to Bitcoin whereby if you want to be a miner, you're going to be in a very, very specific place. You're going to be where electricity is cheap um, and you're going to be consuming huge amounts of electricity, which means they're going to be, you know, um, expending a large amount of of heat. And you're going to need huge warehouses uh, where you're going to be housing these, these mining rigs. And you're most likely going to be found in cold places like Iceland. And so this, this physical footprint means that it, you're not at all stealthy, right? Like the government can just show up at your door, uh, you know, in Iceland or wherever, in China next to a, a dam where you have very cheap electricity and just, you know, confiscate your miners or, or do things like that. Um, whereas with Ethereum, you could just, you know, be anywhere in the world. You know, you could be behind, a, a, you know, tall, uh, the Tor network for, for um, anonymity so that you don't even leak your IP address. And you can just do it on a Raspberry Pi. And I guess if you look at um, you know the the, the fight against my marijuana, right? So um, if you if you're farming this stuff, right, you're you you're, uh, you're going to be expending a lot of energy, and you're going to be um, detectable by governments. Governments use the you know will analyze the electric grid to try and find these these marijuana farmers. Um, And And you can also see
1: them from space. You can see them from satellite imagery. And notably, you can also see Bitmain's mining facilities in China from space, right? And so if we're talking about nation-state level resistance... Like, if you can see them from space, you can send a missile there. I mean, perhaps that's a crazy example, but it's, it's within the realm of possibility.
2: Absolutely, yeah. You can't send a missile to an Ethereum staker for which you don't even know the IP address. Right. And um, even if you did know where the physical
1: location of that little Raspberry Pi was or the validating node, that's not where the ether is. That's not where the security is. The security doesn't actually exist in the physical world. The ether is, if you will, in the ether.
2: So this is one of these advantages where it's hard to quantify. It's hard to say this is 10 times better or 100 times better. It's just, you know, infinity times better. Just, well, actually, maybe you could try and quantify it. So if you look, for example, at energy expenditure, right? So um, you have, um, you know, 1.5 million mining rigs. Each rig, one one kilowatt. In in, in comparison, you have, let's say, 10,000 10, nodes. Each node consumes, let's say, 100 watts. Uh, on, so that's that's like a, like a thousand to one, right? So that's that's three orders of magnitude, uh, more stealthiness, just in terms of the, the power consumption of the Ethereum proof of stake network relative to the uh, Bitcoin proof of work network.
1: All right, Justin, so we have our efficient vehicle pulling the load up the hill, but engines and systems can break down over time. Uh, let's let's lead into this conversation. How how can we make sure to have our engine not break down over time and what can we do about this?
2: I guess you will want to try and look at engine degradation. Like how does the engine evolve over time as you use it? Now, this is uh, an aspect where Bitcoin kind of the de- the Bitcoin engine degrades e- extremely fast. So Roughly um you know every year one third of the mining hardware becomes obsolete and so you have to, to remove it. So basically um the, the, the hash rate has this um life lifetime associated with it and then you, it needs to be it needs to be removed. Um and so as as you're um running this engine, the more you run it kind of in a way the, the more it's fighting itself and degrading. On Ethereum, it's the exact opposite, uh, which is amazing. It's negative degradation. The engine becomes stronger the more it is used, which is pretty amazing. One reason is because of of the issuance, right? So the the issuance in proof of stake goes to the stakers, and the stakers are naturally in the disposition to to, to stake more, right? And so the ratio of the the staking power versus the non-staking ETH grows over time because of this issuance. You know, this is one of the advantages of not being distributive. Those who are ready to secure the Ethereum network grow power over time. I guess another aspect is, you know, the transaction fees, right? The transaction fees are burnt and transaction fees come from non-staking ETH. So that again, kind of increases the ratio towards the the stakers. And then the final thing is tip. The tip is the part of the transaction fee which is not burnt. And that's even more obvious you know the tip directly goes from non-staking if users to the stakers who are the validators and collect these these non-burnt transaction fees
1: this has always been to me the most elegant part about proof of stake because what proof of stake does is that it rewards bullishness it rewards the people who make proof of stake work, right? So the people that make proof of stake work are the people that believe in the asset, that stake the asset. And then proof of stake rewards those people in the asset that they stake. And because we've shed the inefficiencies of a proof of work engine, which must inherently sell the native asset into the market to pay for the upgrade costs of both the electricity and the engine instead we have just rewarded the people with the more of the asset that they already believe in right Proof of stake rewards bullishness. And what you were saying is like, we, we, we talked about the trade-offs behind distribution. Proof of stake is not a distribution mechanism. It's a security mechanism. And it puts more and more ETH into the hands of the people that are willing to be offer security to Ethereum. And so there's this always this slight tilt in favor of the people that are going to provide security to Ethereum. And so anytime that any transaction is made on Ethereum, it always a little bit, ends up in the hands of the people that are most incentivized and most willing to protect the network. And that to me is just perfect mechanism design because it aligns incentives behind the Ethereum economy and the people that secure that Ethereum economy, which is eth stakers. Do you know David, it's almost the
0: difference between like hiring mercenaries for your national security and your your army versus like hiring citizens who have a vested interest in the long term benefit of the nation state that they're protecting.
1: Who live in their own land and have something to lose if they lose, if they mess up.
2: Right. And this incentive alignment is not as strong in Bitcoin, right? You don't have to be a Bitcoin holder to be a Bitcoin miner. And actually, we're starting to see this misalignment in the context of proof of work for EIP 1559, right? We have miners saying, "I don't, we don't want this. And we, we might, you know, do a show of force and we might even, you know, forcefully fork things and, and attack the system if it turned out that the 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 miners were Eve holders it's likely that they would have come to a different conclusion there
1: right? Miners believe in silicon, yet stakers believe in the asset, right? And so miners want to maximize their chips and stakers want to maximize the asset. And it's over at the end of the day, it's the value of the asset that powers the engine, right? It has nothing to do with the ASIC. So Justin, up to this point, we've talked about the design of
0: the engine and we've contrasted proof of work versus Ethereum uh, proof of stake. We've also talked a lot about the efficiency of the engine, but my sense is there's still more to talk about around economic efficiency of the engine. What else do we need to understand about efficiency?
2: So there's kind of two very key points for the economic efficiency. The first one is around fuel efficiency. How much security do you get per unit of fuel? And here there's a very nice kind of um, metaphor. So um, it turns out that all the inefficiencies of the proof-of-work engine mean that for every $1 of economic security, you need to spend every year $1 of fuel. You need to feed it $1. And so if you think of the economic security as kind of being loaned to the protocol, right? So the miners are loaning their hardware to the protocol um, and the protocol receives a- economic security and needs to pay for this economic security. The protocol, in terms of APY for that loan, it needs to pay a 100% APY, uh, which is insane. Um, on the other hand, with proof of stake, um, the... Um, because you're dealing with with pure money it turns out that the APY is going to cost the, is going to match the cost of money right and what's the cost of money that's you know 3% 4% 5% it's this is really a paradigm shift in terms of economic efficiency where instead of paying the principal you know every year if you have 5 billion dollars of security every year you need to spend 5 billion dollars to secure it because of the, the electricity that you need to spend, but also because of the hardware obsolescence. On the other hand, with, with proof of stake, you o- the protocol only needs to pay for the cost of money, which is, let's say it's 5%, and that's 20x more efficient than proof of work
1: and this goes back to the conversation about money right and if the bitcoin network needs to have all of this expenditure this this to meet its own expenditure requirements every single year What that does is that is battery leakage, that's energy leakage out of the Bitcoin unit, because all the miners that depend on BTC for revenue must sell BTC to pay for Bitcoin security. And so they they sell BTC to pay for electricity. They sell BTC to pay for new hardware. And that is how the Bitcoin network maintains itself. In contrast, in proof of stake, stakers don't have to sell anything because staking has been designed to be maximally efficient. All you need is a Raspberry Pi and an internet connection. And so that Raspberry Pi consumes some electricity, maybe $50 a year. That internet connection costs something, but it's nothing to, nothing in comparison to uh, uh, turnover of ASIC uh, chips and nothing compared to energy consumption. And and so what we're saying is the cost of Bitcoin security costs $5 billion and it costs $5 billion every single year. But with proof of stake, it's just the opportunity cost of capital. And that goes back to what we were talking about, about sta- uh, proof of stake inherently rewarding people who are bullish ether. The opportunity cost of capital it, for them, for people who are bullish ether, is nothing because there's no other asset in the world that they want more than the asset that they are staking. And so in theory, the opportunity cost of capital is almost nothing for them. And so almost nothing is the cost of proof of stake if we are ins- incentivizing bullishness on ether, which is what proof of stake tends to do.
2: Absolutely, yeah, you said it very well. So let's talk
0: about the, uh, the, the second piece here, Justin, of economic efficiency that, that you hinted at.
2: What, what is that second piece? Right, so the second piece is EIP-1559. And the idea here is that if we have excess energy in the system, let's not waste it on fuel that is not going to be useful for security, right? There's no point in overpaying for security. Um, And instead, we're just going to take that energy and charge the battery. Um, So um, we we have a system whereby um, the amount of fuel that we're giving is always the right amount. We're not underpaying for security and jeopardizing security, and we're not overpaying and jeopardizing efficiency. And one of the um, amazing things is that when you when you burn, you open up the possibility of actually reducing the total supply. So, the bitcoiners will often think of issuance at the ro- as the root of all evil, but actually, what they really mean is um, is the increase in the supply. But it turns out that if you if your burn more than compensates for the issuance, you have a reduction in supply, and it doesn't matter that you have this issuance. the um, the The net result is still that your your economic battery cells will not leak and it actually it's the opposite. They might, um, you know, get charged over time as the burn is able to overcompensate for the issuance.
1: When I wrote my article on EIP 1559, I think back in like 2019, the way that I described EIP 1559 is that the Ethereum protocol is issuing a stock buyback. Every time a transaction is made, right, that burning is Ethereum, the protocol, buying back its own Ether. And this is Ethereum, the protocol, being a persistent buying pressure on Ether. And going back to the very beginning of this podcast, we talked about the way that you charge a monetary unit is by buying it and bitcoin is is a charged monetary unit because everyone is buying it right now but if ethereum the protocol is the net buyer is a persistent net buyer of all ether that tracks the GDP of the Ethereum economy. And so there's it's always a buyer for Ether, and it's the Ethereum, the protocol under an EIP-1559 paradigm. And so anytime there's excess energy, anytime the sun is so incredibly bright that the solar panel is picking up that energy and it's too much to use right now because we don't need it, the truck is already moving up the hill, towing its load at a steady clock of sixty miles an hour. We don't want to go any faster. We don't want to go any slower. So let's capture that energy and put it into the battery, put it back into the system, and that system is ether the asset. Absolutely,
2: yeah. Um, and if you look at the net difference between, you know, what we're expending today in transaction fees, and which which goes towards basically, you know, buying um, GPUs and paying for the electricity bills, you know, it's on the order of. You know, 10,000 10, ETH per day, um, and you know once we we start burning that, you know, where the 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 net difference is going to be twice that, right? We're going to go from plus ten thousand to to minus uh, ten thousand, so that's kind of a net, you know, uh, twenty twenty thousand, and when when you um, when you look at current prices and you also take into account the the efficiency gains. Um, from, from removing proof of work um, after the merge, we're looking at you know, $13 billion per year roughly of, of buy pressure relative to what we have today. So just to put that into perspective, it's, um, it's greater than burning all the ETH locked in DeFi every single year. It's also the equivalent of buying all the ETH in the deposit contract and the and grayscale combined every single year. So it's a, it's a kind of a tsunami um, of... It's a, it's a huge shockwave in terms of um, the delta between what we have today, which is a, a huge amount of cell pressure r- um, relative to what we'll have in the future, which is a buy bi- pressure. Now, the reason why um, I'm, I'm relatively confident that we're actually going to have a net buy pressure... Is because you can just look at the, the transactions uh, today. It turns out that if you annualize over, over you know the three hundred and sixty-five days, if you take a moving average, um, where, um, we have six thousand ether per day in transaction fees. So you can make an assumption that some some fraction of that is going to get burnt, Let's say seventy percent. When you compare that to the to the issuance, that's actually more than twice what you need in order to to negate the the issuance. So yeah, I'm relatively confident that um, in the future, we will enter this ultrasound state where the total amount of ETH in circulation will go down over time.
0: This is almost the the, the climax of the entire episode. Um, You mentioned this term ultrasound money, of course, Bitcoin uh, has famously called itself you sound to money, but what you're referring to with ultrasound money is, is something even the, the next level above Bitcoin, something that has maybe negative issuance per year. I want to go to something that just is underappreciated in Ethereum. And I, I just want to make this statement and then we'll talk about um, ultrasound money. And that's this. I think ETH, the asset, is the single most unappreciated thing in the Ethereum ecosystem like everything that you're talking about, people forget that Ether is a cryptocurrency. Uh, They're very excited about Ethereum, the network, and you'll get people who say things like, I'm bullish Ethereum, the network, but I'm not bullish on ETH. That, from everything you've described, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, because how can you be bullish on Ethereum, the economy, or Ethereum, the network, and not also be bullish on Ether, the asset, when we're talking about these types of burn mechanisms, when we're talking about these uh, types of staking lockup mechanisms. So let's, let's round this out. Let's talk about this, Justin. When you say ultrasound money, this whole thing, this whole engine has produced, at the end of the day, economic scarcity, uh, what are we talking about here? What is ultrasound money? The
2: way that this meme came about is was really a joke. It was a play on words. The idea was that if Bitcoin is sound money and it has cap supply, then if you have a decreasing supply, you must be ultrasound, right? And you know you can use the the, the bat emoji to kind of represent the ultrasounds that come uh, from from bats. But um, you know it, it turns out that this this meme is is much, much, much deeper. Right, so one of the aspects that we've talked about at length is that um, economic security on Ethereum is much much higher than Bitcoin, and that contributes to this ultra soundness, um, and and you know that contributes, for example, towards um, Ethereum becoming this shelling point for a a, a global um, world internet um, currency. I guess the other aspect is that Ethereum. Once we have EIP one five five nine, is uh, an income generating uh, asset. So you can think of of it in terms of, of profit and uh, P-E P- P- ratios. So, you know, if you if we say that we have roughly a hundred million ether and we're burning a million ether every year, well, that's kind of a P two P E ratio of 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 a hundred. So, you know, Ethereum is in this really. Um, advantageous position where it can do multiple things at the same time. On the one hand, it can act like a stock, you know, with a P-E ratio of, let's say, 100, and it can also act as kind of a, a store value with this um, magic meme energy um, stored within it. Um, and, you know, these things are, are, are complementary, right? So the fact that we now have money that behaves like a stock with a PE ratio makes it more amenable to become a store of value because it it, it makes the shutting points even more potent.
1: I want to rehash what you said a, a minute ago because I want to make sure that it lands with the listeners. Once we integrate all of the research and development that has gone on from the Ethereum researchers about crypto economic system design, once we improve our engine from proof of work to proof of stake. It's much more efficient. We don't need to put as much fuel into it, which means we, we need to sell less ETH to achieve the same result, which is keeping the ETH battery charged. So we, we uh, go from having to issue you know 2 ETH per block to much, much less than that, 0.1 ETH per block. We bring the issuance down. And so therefore, Ether becomes much harder. Then we add an EIP-1559, which captures so much of the energy of the Ethereum economy and turns that into net buying pressure of Ether, the asset, by Ethereum. And as a result of all of these efficiencies that we've talked about, we get to have, as an Ethereum ecosystem, a net buyer of Ether that is equivalent to the amount of Ether that is in Grayscale and the deposit contract combined every single year, reoccurring a new one of those every single year. And 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 an additional metaphor is all of the ETH locked in DeFi that we like obsess over on DeFi Pulse, the I I don't know what number of millions of ETH is locked in DeFi, or it's $42 billion. We get that net buying pressure every single year. It's recyclable. That buying pressure is recyclable. And so this happens every single year after year after year. And this is where the sustainability of both Ether, the asset, and Ethereum, the economy, comes from. is because we have created ultra sound money because we have designed the system in the best possible way. And this is why Ryan is so upset that people don't understand this. It's because it's, yeah, the, it's it. the most underappreciated asset of all time. It's absolutely no, I crazy.
2: I mean, there, there are some, some, some questions, though, like, is this fee burn really sustainable? And this is a valid question to ask ourselves. So for example, what if the price of ETH increases, right? Does it mean that because people are denominating their transaction fees in US dollar, does it mean that the total amount of ETH that is gonna be burnt is gonna reduce as the price of ETH increases? Well, it turns out that um, that's not the case. So you can look at it from an empirical evidence standpoint. So from Genesis to now, the, the price of ETH has grown a 1,000x, actually 2,000x, from $1 to $2,000. And over that time, the amount of transaction fees has gone nothing but up. And so you can ask yourself, what, are, what is the possible explanation for the fact that the total amount of ETH in transaction fees goes up despite the price of ETH going up and one possible explanation is that as the price of ETH increases that's highly correlated with user demand right the price of ETH increases you have lots of fresh blood coming in new users and so that puts more pressure on, on the fee market and that compensates for the fact that the price of ETH has been increasing I guess another um, possible explanation is that ETH is used as economic bandwidth in this economy. And so as the price of ETH increases, you have more economic bandwidth, and suddenly you have more opportunities, right? You have uh, increased economic density, meaning that every single transaction will carry more value. Um, And, you know, you maybe have more opportunities in terms of arbitrage, right? Because there's just more money slushing around because you have more bandwidth. I guess maybe another possible explanation is that you you simply have a richer user base, right? And so the the price sensitivity to transaction fees decreases. And maybe like a final kind of possible explanation for this empirical behavior is that ETH is a what I call, a, I guess, a unit of trading, right? So um, this is a pretty amazing statistic, which is that if you look at the Uniswap volume, right now we're doing a billion dollars of volume on Uniswap it turns out that 95% of that volume is in ETH pairs. What I mean by an ETH pair, I mean that there's two ERC-20 tokens, one of which is the wrapped ETH. Uh, wrapped ETH. So out of the billion dollars of transaction volume, 950 million is basically with ETH. And so if you look at arbitrage opportunities, they're going to be ETH denominated. And so it's, it doesn't matter if the price of ETH increases because if you have, let's say, a 0.1 ETH arbitrage opportunity and your transaction fee is 0.05 ETH, it's an invariant. Whatever the price of ETH is, you're going to want to conduct that, that arbitrage opportunity. And I guess we're starting to see ETH being used as a, as a unit of account and a unit of trading beyond just you know, Uniswap. For example, we're seeing it in NFTs. And the more ETH is used as a, as a unit of account... Um, the more the amount of transaction fees uh, in ETH that we can burn is going to be insensitive to, to price increases.
0: Well said. What we're seeing right before our eyes is Ether as an asset increasing in moneyness in its ability to be a store of value, unit of account, and unit of exchange, which is super exciting, and all of the reasons why this is important. I think we've we've gone through right. ETH has to have value, and a lot of value, tremendous amount of value, in order for it to host the world's open finance economic activity. It needs it in order to secure itself. It needs it for economic bandwidth, trustless economic bandwidth. You know, one thing I want to uh, talk about here as we as we get to a close here, Justin, is um, sound money culture. Right. So Bitcoin very much has sound money culture. Right. They, you know, thou shalt never touch the issuance schedule of of Bitcoin, even if it even if it means the truck can't pull the economic weight up the hill. Thou shalt not touch it ever. Because why? Because hard money. That's why. Um, Can we talk about this? Because. We opened this up and we were talking about shelling points and, and money is, is really sort of a, a social coordination game, if you will. Um, is, is sound money, it sounds like it's being baked into the Ethereum protocol, ultrasound money. Is it also being baked into Ethereum's culture? Because that's important too. Um, is it? What, what do you think about Ethereum's culture? Uh, because ultimately, you know, it, it, the layer zero, as we've said so often, Justin, is people. It is, it is culture, we are socially enforcing the value and the economic security of these networks. And if we don't have sound money, minimum necessary issuance in the culture of the system, we won't be able to enforce that as securely. How would you rate Ethereum on that?
2: Right, so one of the, the big counterpoints of Bitcoiners of the ultrasound money thesis is predictability, right? For them, a, a big aspect of soundness is predictability. Um, and I guess that that makes sense. And that's a fair you know, counterpoint that basically, if you were at Ethereum at Genesis, it would have been unpredictable for you um, to foresee the various um, changes in, in issuance that we've seen historically. So historically, we've seen two major changes. The first one is the reduction of um, the uh, block reward from 5 ETH to 3 ETH. Uh, per block so that happened in October 2017 and then we had another reduction from three ETH per block to two ETH per block in February 2019 and I guess we know we're in the in the process of doing another block reduction like a, f- a third policy change uh, where we're basically removing proof of work and going to proof of stake and that's roughly a 10x improvement so we're going from two ETH per block to roughly 0.2 ETH per block. Now, um, you could you could you know ask yourself is this isn't this bad you know we've lost uh, predictability and what what I'd say to this is that as you say we have layer zero predictability right the community predictably only goes in one single direction which is hardening right so every time we make a a, a policy um, change we're hardening. Um, as opposed to you know the Federal Reserve, which is op- often in the other direction. So you know Lynn Alden um, has this you know famous quote where she says you know the Ethereum developers change the um, the their issuance policy as, as as often as the Fed. Well, first of all, that is just not true in terms of in terms of a, a quantitative standpoint, right? In 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 five years or six years, we we're, we're looking to make three issuance uh, uh, changes. Whereas, you know, in the similar time frame, the, the Fed has made more like 30, so 10 times more. But maybe more importantly, each of these issuance are in the hardening direction as opposed to the uh, you know in- inflation um, direction. I guess another thing that I'll say is that I think us Ethereans, we want to um, maximize for long-term predict- predictability. And so we've traded off the short-term predictability where we have... You know this initial experimentation, um, and over the long term, we're going to ossify and we're not going to change. This is kind of a natural thing that happens to blockchain protocols; they ossify over time. Um, and to my knowledge, we know we don't have any, you know, plans to, to really change the issuance beyond um, what, what is being delivered uh, with with proof of stake. On the other hand, Bitcoin talks about predictability, but actually, it's it has you know skeletons in the closet. Right. So it's optimizing for short term predictability. But because it doesn't have sustainability, you know, relative to security, it's actually um, not optimizing for long term predictability. So, you know, who knows what will happen in the future? We know it's unsustainable. You know, in 30 years, something has to change. We don't know exactly what's going to change. Maybe Bitcoin will move to proof of stake. Maybe Bitcoin will, will move to the Ethereum network. Maybe they'll remove the 21 million limit. No one knows. Um, but and and this is kind of a source of of long term unpredictability, which uh, we hope to not have in Ethereum.
1: Justin, can you talk about hard money as a design goal of Ethereum? And that might sound foreign to a lot of people because that is again, like like Ryan said, it's not it hasn't really been baked into our culture. But I think it has, and we—it's actually just been unconscious in the culture. It's not in the consciousness of the Ethereum culture, but it's perhaps in the unconscious of Ethereum culture. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I think I think I would agree um, that there's been this 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 unconscious uh, desire to have sound money, and it's becoming more and more conscious. You know, partly thanks to you guys uh, and others who can you know work on this narrative layer. Um, i guess um you know w- within the kind of the, the the research team i guess i you know there is also kind of a shift a, a more of an awareness that there is a desire from the community at the end of the day you know where we try to cater for for the community and there there is this um this desire for um soundness um and so we're we're making um, explicit design decisions towards that. So to give you one example, um, we uh, want to cap the total number of validators to roughly 1 million validators. So that corresponds to 32 million um, ETH. And that will basically also cap the amount of issuance um, that we, that the uh, proof-of-stake system can can do So we, we, we kind of estimate that 1 million validators is more than enough security. There's no need to overpay, so we just cap it. And it turns out that when you have 1 million validators, that corresponds roughly to a maximum issuance of 1 million ETH, which is kind of a nice round meme number that in the worst case scenario, we're going to inflate at 1 million ETH per year. But of course, you know, if we're going to burn 2 or 3 or 4 million ETH, the, the net amount is going to be um, negative.
1: And why is capping validators a good thing to do? Why is that? Why is that
2: justifiable? Right. So that goes back to the um, uh, you know efficiency. So EIP one five five nine prevents overspending on security, and allowing us to charge the battery. While the cap also allows us to not overspend on security by basically capping the amount of. Energy that we're drawing from the battery, we're not going to be drawing any more than one one million ether per year. You know, one thing I
0: I often think is when etherians talk about uh, sound money, they just use different terms. They they talk about security, and of course, security is just one side of the same coin. When we talk about monetary premium and ether as an asset backing the security of the entire network, so. Uh, Ethereum has always been optimizing for sound money in a way because it's always been optimizing for security. People also, you know, when you were talking about developers and issu- issuance, and we had Lynn Alden on the podcast, she sort of, uh, you know, made this argument. I think people overestimate the ability for developers to just like fed chair a change to issuance inside of the protocol. At the end of the day, the Ethereum network and the layer zero is minimum necessary issuance. And so, if anybody i'm sure you would agree justin you know on the ethereum dev side of things or research side of things tried to put in some sort of issuance change where you know funds were going to ether issuance was going to a separate deposit to be used for you know who knows what the community would reject that right so at the end of the day this is backed by the same mechanism that bitcoin is backed by which is this which is this layer 0 you know justin maybe we could kind of sum up what this means uh, ultrasound money. This is kind of the the sister episode, as we as we said in the intro, to the bull case for for crypto economics. I feel like this episode has been almost the bull case for Ether, the asset. Sum this up for us. What does this mean? What are some of the the takeaways for crypto natives and people who are interested in in these technologies?
2: Yeah. So um, I mean, I kind of see it as the the bull case of. Ethereum economics as a whole, and that includes many different aspects. You know, one is being able to secure the blockchain. Um, right? We have this crypto economic system. The economic part is kind of a necessary evil. Um, it would be great if we could do it purely with cryptography, but you know we need economics. So let's make sure that the economics is as robust as we can get it. Um, let's basically engineer the crap out of it. The other aspect is, you know, engineering for, for, for soundness and for this, this, this store of, of, of value aspect. So, you know, I, I mentioned that soundness, one possible definition is the ability to transport over time, right? So when you have digital money, it's trivial to transport over space, right? You can, you can just use the internet and travel at the speed of the internet or, or you know, at the speed of light. Um, but travel over time is a, is a difficult endeavor. Now, why is travel over time especially relevant for Ethereum? Um, one of the reasons is that DeFi is built on ETH as collateral, right? If you take, for example, a synthetic like a stablecoin, right? You're going to use Ether as collateral. And, you know, we're going to see tons and tons of synthetics, right? Not just stable coins, but, you know, stocks and whatnot and so we need when when you when you have a synthetic what you're doing is you're putting ETH as collateral now it would be a crazy idea to put an asset which is not sound as collateral right you, because basically what you you want the collateralization ratio to improve over time right so that you don't get liquidated so what do you want to be doing in a, in a in a, in a sound kind of synthetic framework is you want to be putting the hardest money as collateral and then using that as the backing for, your, for all your synthetics. Another aspect of, of, of soundness which is critical for Ethereum is, is staking. You know, as, as David said, um, you know, staking doesn't work unless you have people who are bullish Ether and are happy to hold it over extended periods of time. Here we kind of have this, this reflexivity going on, which is that um, the more people are happy to hold ETH as a store of value, as a long-term store of value, we're going to have more validators, which is going to lead to more security, which is going to lead to more people being comfortable holding ETH as a long-term store of value. So we have all these um, beneficial um, mechanics you know at at play. And then ultimately, when we try and sum everything up, really, we have a, a new paradigm kind of in, in economic theory, I guess. You know, we've never seen this before. We've never seen um, a kind of a deflationary sound money. We're in uncharted territories and, you know, it's e- extremely exciting uh, because, you know, people also don't completely realize um, what the, the amazing, you know, system that, that we're putting out there, partly because right now the beacon chain is this the skeleton chain, right? Which is only securing itself, it's not really securing anything else. But once everything comes together, which is a process which will take, you know, um, about a year or a year and a half. So the rough roadmap is this year in, in one of the, the hard forks, I think it's the London hard fork, uh, we're gonna have EIP 1559 in July. And then in 2022, we're gonna have the so-called merge where we remove the proof of work and have proof of stake. And at that point, from an economic standpoint, we have something extremely exciting, like the the next level of economic uh, engineering, uh, ingenuity, I guess. Guys,
0: this year, burn, next year, merge, and reduced issuance. Justin Drake, we want to thank you for joining us on the Bankless podcast and explaining all this to us. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you, guys. What an episode, Bankless (sighs) Nation. You know what? Um, I think that's going to take some time to digest. One thing, one of my takeaways, and I'm sure is yours, David, too, is Bitcoin, move over. There's a new store of value on the scene. Wait until this narrative leaks out into mainstream. We are early. This is the frontier, guys. Uh, Super exciting stuff here with Justin
1: not just sound money, but ultra sound money. Justin, not only the creator of this fantastic episode, but also the creator of the thing, the meme that I think will carry ether into the very end. Ultra sound money with Justin Drake. Justin, thank you for being here and delivering us this information.
2: Thanks again for having me.
0: This has been a canonical episode, some action items for you guys. There's another sister episode to this that we mentioned a few times. We will leave that as an action item in the show notes. That is the bull case for cryptography. Uh, Also, we've got to say, emphasize this, of course, none of this was investment advice. We don't know what the short-term price of ether is going to do. Long-term, of course, we're bullish, but who knows? Crypto is risky, DeFi is risky. You could lose what you put in. But as usual, we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks so much for joining us on The Bankless Journey.